When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. The SMS text message that I am about to read is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. Uh, this is an SMS text message I received Monday morning at 455 from a very close friend of mine. Let's call him Joe. That is not his name. So if you're looking uh, for people that uh, I'm associated with that are named Joe and trying to pin the blame on one of these people, you will have no such luck. But listen to this. Uh, so this I received this right as our show Monday morning was ending on the East Coast. Good show tonight. Almost called in from the road to yell at Mr. Two Miles an Hour under the speed limit caller. Helped make my round trip to LBI, Long Beach Island, at 1.30 to get, then he mentions his daughter's name, we'll call her Jacqueline, uh, to get Jacqueline and Jessica, that's a friend of his daughter's, from jail go quicker. So let me read that again. Uh, good show tonight. Almost called in from the road to yell at Mr. Two Miles an Hour under the speed limit. Caller helped make my round trip to LBI at one thirty in the morning to get Jacqueline and Jessica from jail go quicker. I said, jail? And then his response was, Jessica got a DUI and Jacqueline, that's his daughter, stupidly was in a car with her. So friend of mine, the friend, a couple that I'm friends with, they have a uh, daughter that's 17 years old, and she was down at the shore last weekend at the Jersey Shore. And apparently the two of them are just as tanked as can be. Uh, she and her friend are just as tanked as can be. She gets in the car with her friend who's driving. The friend is drunk. They go. The, the mission was to go to Wawa and purchase snacks for everybody else that's in that shore house. I think these... Girls are 17 or 18 years old, maybe maybe a year or two older, the driver, but n- I don't think so. I think they're about 18. So the dr- And on, they never made it to Wawa. The police, thankfully, pulled them over, arrested the driver, and they detained my friend's daughter until they could get in touch with, uh, you know, her parents. So my friends, they called my, my, my friend, the mother of this young woman. Not the one that was driving, but the one that was the passenger. And they said to her, we'll call my friend Monique. It's not her name. They said, Monique, your daughter is here. What do you want to do? Do you, You can come get her. Or if you give us permission, we can release her to the custody of the mother that's down here. Now, my friend is thinking, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to give her back into the custody of this woman that was so irresponsible a couple of hours ago that she let two of these girls drive drive around drunk. She said, I'm going to send my husband to come down and get her right now. 
So she waited at the police station for, I guess, about two and a half, three hours until her father came and picked her up. So they go and pick her up. And, you know, now she's as grounded as can be. This was just a couple of days ago. She's as grounded as can be. She's got every punishment in the world, every possible restriction removed. And the parents have uh, told her, which is not really true, that she could be facing some severe legal consequences. And I am wondering, what do you do in that instance? If you're a parent and your 17-year-old is so foolish to get into a car with someone, a driver, who's tanked, what is the proper punishment? They're, they're telling her, they're being dishonest with her. They're telling her that she could get in a lot of trouble now, that they're going to have to see what happens, that she may have to go and testify against her friend. And this young woman, their daughter, just feels awful. She's, uh, she's devastated. She's upset. She's apologetic. She's crying. And she's been that way for, you know, three or four days. And she believes her parents when her parents are telling her that she's going to have to face all these legal consequences. Their goal, my friends who are this young woman's parents, their goal is to, in their words, put the fear of God into her, as it were, and kind of do a scared straight kind of a deal and make sure that she never does anything like this again. Do you think that's the right approach? If not, what is the right approach? What would you do? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I look, I applaud their, you know, being harsh with a punishment on this, because if there's one thing that I think you want to teach a young person other than not drinking and driving, it's that you never want to get in the car with someone that's been drinking and driving. I mean, that there are that is one of the key activities that a young person is likely to engage in, which could literally end their life. Who needs that? So I think you do want them kind of scared about that whole situation where I sort of draw the line and I'm not sure they're doing the right thing is by being dishonest with their daughter by kind of telling her that she's going to be in legal jeopardy now when the fact of the matter is she's not. Now you could understand it from the daughter's perspective because the daughter knows that she was detained at the police precinct for a couple of hours. She doesn't know what the police officers told her father. So you could understand why the daughter might think she's in some potential legal trouble here, even though she's not. Do you think the parents are doing the right thing here by telling the daughter she could be in legal jeopardy here? Or should they just say, you know, you're punished. You can't do this anymore. You can't do that anymore. This is the story from now on. And boom, what would you do? 800-848-9222. Or if you've been in a similar situation, not where your child is the driver, but where your child is so foolish to be a passenger in a car that's being driven by someone that's been drinking. What do you do? 800-848-9222. I am over the moon at the kind of show that we have uh, for you today. Now, coming up in just a few minutes... Dr. Edward Belbruno is going to be here. This guy has more degrees than a thermometer. He's an incredibly brilliant guy. Guys like this just drive me crazy because not only is he a scientist and a mathematician, but he's also an artist. I mean, come on. 
Isn't that a little much? Leave some, leave some skills for the rest of us. Either you're a left brain guy or a right brain guy. But anyway, he worked for NASA for many years in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's an expert in something called dark matter. Do you have any idea what dark matter is? Well, you're about to find out. We'll get into that in a big way. Matthew Faisalpour is going to be here. He is a journalist with NJ Biz, and uh, he had an interesting article about how Atlantic City, we're going to do this as part of our uh, AC report, he has an interesting article about how Atlantic City is betting big on development, and I'm wondering if that's a model that other municipalities could be uh, could be facing. And uh, it, since it's Thursday, we're going to have our weekly chat with Brian Kilmeade in our final hour. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Tom in the Bronx. Hello there, Tom. Yeah. Hi, Frank. How you doing? I think the parents are right in doing what they're doing because she may want to get uh, – she, she may want to uh, get rebellious and rejoin these individuals and – well, look what happened in Staten Island with uh, with these kids. They were, were driving. You know, one was driving, and you have some deceased kids over there. Oh no! Well, again, we don't know all the details about what happened there, but uh, but you're right. Uh, that was a, a real tragedy, and uh, I yeah, I mean, okay. Uh, so that's one vote for saying that um, that you know that the parents are right. Okay, eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two, two. By the way, I uh, want to uh, welcome uh, one of our new salespeople that is here observing the show today. Very nice guy uh, named John. I met him last week when he was here. Somehow he drew, drew, drew the short straw and is forced to observe this program today. But I, I see him in the kitchen, and, um, you know, it's like 10 minutes before the show. And he's asking, all right, what do you have prepared for today? What, what do you have in store for today? And I'm thinking... Well, I mean, you could just listen in 10 minutes and then you'll know exactly what's coming up. Or should I, you know, stop 10 minutes before the show and give you a detailed tease about what we're going to be doing on the show? And, 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 you know, ultimately, I just said, well, we really haven't figured that out yet, which is sort of true. We always add a little element of of the unknown and spontaneity. But uh, I, it always is interesting to me with the the people that either expect a personalized promotion of that show or description. Somebody texted me yesterday wanting to know my opinion on something that I've been talking about on the show. And I said, I- I'm not answering this. I'm not answering this because if they want to hear my opinion on whatever subject, you could just listen to the show. And then this person says, well, you know, I've been going to bed early so because you're going to bed early, I now have to do a second show for you? Come on. Get with the program. 800-848-9222. Alan calling from Delaware, which is, of course, the first state. Hello, Alan. Thank you. So the parents need to be straight up with the child. They need to establish trust. And if they're going to aver from that, then they're going to be breaking a bond that the children would, would have with them. I uh, completely agree with you. Uh, that's that's where that's where I would be. I think as a parent, if I were in a similar situation, Alan, do you have um, children of your own, and have you ever been in a similar situation to this? No, no, no to both. 
note of both. Yeah, I think um, I think you are you would play this in the hypothetical scenario the exact way that that I would. I, I don't see. And thanks for the call, Alan. I don't see what the value is of being dishonest with with your child. I mean, you could just say they're in trouble domestically, right? Uh, say they're grounded, say they can't do this, say they can't drive, say whatever privileges that exist no longer are available to them. I don't see what the value is in being extra dishonest with them. I don't think so uh, at all. Really, at any age, quite frankly. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. I got an ex- SMS text message here from a, a great listener who says, the parents don't have to embellish the story it's on her record, and a blip will show up when she applies for anything, job, school, loan. Well, I'm not sure that's the case, actually. I think um, the, the police told the uh, – they didn't fill out any paperwork or anything, and the the police told her parents that essentially there would be nothing on her record about it. So I'm not sure that your analysis is, uh, is correct. 800-848-9222. Joseph is in Huntington. Hello, Joseph. Well, I think, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing fine. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say that I think the father should use an example from his own life to teach his daughter. And I think when you said something about putting the fear of God in her, I think if you go to the book of Proverbs, in the scriptures, it says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And it's the duty of the parents to take their responsibility to train up their children. When they are young, when they're old, they will not depart from it. So to teach them the fear of God is very important. Well, so on a practical level, Joseph, what do you do? What do you do if you're this young woman's parents? I would, if it was my son or my daughter, I would tell, you know, I would, I would sit with them. I would explain to them. Some some uh, examples in my own life where I chose to do something stupid, and there are consequences when we do something stupid. Okay, and you know now you need to realize that you not to get into a car with someone like that. That's whatever it was. I didn't hear the first part of it, but you know there are consequences when we take the wrong actions. And a child, a child needs to learn to be attentive and alert to what's happening around them. And that's what I would train my children. In. Okay. Well, thank you. So, so far, it sounds like nobody thinks, except Tom in the Bronx, that the parents were right to make this young woman think that she's going to be facing some sort of legal jeopardy here. So it's Tom from the Bronx and my friend Joe, that's a pseudonym, versus the rest of the communal parenting listenership. All right. Well, hey, I've been in worse in foxholes with worse people than Tom from the Bronx, that's for sure. Neil in Staten Island, what do you do here, Neil? What did your parents do, Frank, when you were drunk, uh, underage? Well, I never I never got in trouble. I never got in a car with somebody that uh, you know, that was driving while drunk that I'm aware of anyway. Yeah, I'm only teaching you, Frank, but Mm. when it comes down to where's the parent's responsibility? I mean, the girl's underage. She shouldn't be drinking to begin with. I'm surprised that the police department uh, didn't uh, try to prosecute the parents because they have some responsibility. They they should, number one, she shouldn't be drinking. They should be supervising her. 
it's, it's all wrong all around. Everything is wrong with the story. Right. So what do you do? Let's say you're in the parents' shoes now, and this is your child. What do you do? Uh, I mean, if it was my kid, I, I would bring holy hell down upon her. I mean, when my son went to law school, I told him, I said, listen, I'll pay for everything. But if you ever get caught drunk driving or driving under the influence, you're going to jail because don't call me. You're on your own. So, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't help her out at all. I would really uh, punish her to the hilt. But the parents should be punished also because they're irresponsible. Well, I mean, it looks like that ship has sailed. The, the, the parents are not going to be punished from what it looks like. But I, I don't disagree with you. You know, look, uh, if somebody's going to be participating in underage drinking, there's got to be uh, some sort of uh, repercussions for her. And look, she's been se- being severely punished at home. Uh, I don't know that the parents knew that she was going to be drinking, but they probably suspected. Look, when you're talking 17 and 18-year-olds during the summer at a shore house, I, I mean, I-, I think there's a general assumption that there's going to be alcohol consumption. I, I mean, unless – and the I-, I know her parents. They're very – they're kind of – you know, they're on the younger side. They're They're pretty worldly. They know what goes on. Uh, during the summer at shore houses. So I have to assume that they had at least a vague idea that there was going to be drinking, and maybe they should have given their daughter a stern talking to. Gracie's in Rockland. Hello, Gracie. Hi. Uh, listen, um, I think uh, it depends. Is the, is the girl apologetic? Is she really scared of, of what happened, what she did, what the consequences were? I, I kind of had a similar situation with my son. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but let me tell you, he had to spend the night in in uh, in jail. He was so scared out of his mind. This was, he, he went, I went to an Ivy League school. They went at a party on a bus. I, I don't want to get into the whole thing. He calls me from jail. I thought he was kidding. And I said, oh my God, you know, he, he doesn't drink. It scared the crap out of him. And he's 48 now. Well, no, I, the sense that I get is that uh, she is uh, very, very, uh, o- o- almost b- beyond apologetic. Apologetic is not even the word. She's incredibly well, I remorseful. Would, I wouldn't scare her like that. Then I'd make her, I'd want her to, un, you know, I'll say, you did the wrong thing. Please don't do it again. And you see what happened. It could have been a terrible consequence. But what I don't understand, that's what I mean. Was a mother at this house or there were only 18-year-old kids at the shore? Um, You know, how did the other mother get involved? Well, because I guess the other mother was super, was at the house with all these young, younger teenagers. Well, then you know what? I blame her. Yeah, no, so do I. I. So do I. That's what I I asked when I heard this story. I asked, did did Monique, that's the the mother of the the woman that I know, did she call this other mother and give her a hard time? And apparently not. Uh, She didn't really know, have much of a relationship with the other mother, unless I haven't gotten the whole story, but apparently not. not. Uh, I I agree with you. The um, parents of all these young women were, you know, trusting this woman to provide a little bit of supervision, and that supervision was uh, was lacking. Thanks, Gracie. 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-9222. Rosinley on Staten Island? Uh, it's Roselny. Roselny, um, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we have to go back to the old-school way of educating kids. A smack as long as it doesn't come from anger, always works. It teaches them. 
it, it, and it, it, it hurts for maybe one minute, as long as it's not, you know, physically damaging. I don't think it's mentally damaging. And that's really what works. Yeah, I, I'm not a big believer in corporal punishment, but it works for a lot of folks. Uh, a lot of folks swear by it. I, I do not. I I really also think that the older you get, the less effective corporal punishment is. I mean, if you're five or six years old and you get a, a smack on the behind, be, it, it sort of teaches you the lesson in that instance that um, you've done something wrong. But if you're 17 and you know what you did is wrong, what is a smack really actually doing? I don't think it's doing much, to be honest. 800-848-9222. We'll talk with Dr. Edward Belbruno straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll tell you, one of the most interesting people out there is uh, Dr. Edward Belbruno. Uh, This is a fellow that is very accomplished in way too many different fields. If you ever want to feel bad about yourself, just pull up a copy of Edward Belbruno's resume. He's got more, uh, more degrees than a thermometer. He's an artist. He's a mathematician. He's a scientist. And he's not just any scientist. He's a scientist with a diversity of interests and expertise, celestial mechanics, dynamical systems, dynamical uh, astronomy, aerospace engineering. Worked for many years in NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The guy is a pretty accomplished guy. Uh, Dr. Belbruno, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks. I, I see why this is called The Other Side of Midnight. <laughs> yeah, I, believe me, uh, you, get, uh, you get the hang of the time eventually. All right. Um, so for folks that are unfamiliar with your, your career, tell us a little bit about the work that you did at, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, how long were you there and uh, what, what projects were you responsible for being a part of? Yeah, I I, uh, I went there like, um, geez, I was um, about around 1985, a long, long time ago, and um, I just out of graduate school. I was a professor for a while at B Boston University, didn't like it, um, and then I switched to work for NASA. Uh, design, and my, my background is is in the field of celestial mechanics, the way things move in outer space, and um, uh, and I was doing research in it after I got my PhD uh, from NYU, and I, I really didn't like the research world, so. I was hired to go out there to JPL, and and basically, um, you know, for those listening, um, 
JPL, you know, that's the place that lands those spaceships on Mars, you see, and, and sends the, does deep space missions. So I was hired to design trajectories for the, uh, for the Galileo mission to Jupiter and the Cassini mission to Saturn, the Magellan mission to Venus, and all of those. And uh, um, more or less standard work, I mean, you know, you're sitting there in front of a desk just designing trajectories for these major multi-billion dollar missions. Uh, but I noticed when I was there that uh, uh, what, what got me going was I kept my research going that I had back in uh, in my in my research life. I got, I got sick of being an engineer because I was trained as a math guy, not not in the field of engineering hmm. where I found myself. And uh, so I, to keep myself busy, um, I was designing uh, new ways to get to the moon, believe it or not. And uh, the, the the usual way to get there is to it's basically a ballistic shot like out of a cannon. You just aim towards the moon, you go there almost a straight line, and it takes about three days. And when you get there, you're going like really too fast. So you got to slow down and you have to spend a lot of money for fuel because it's expensive. It's like a million dollars a pound, believe it or not. So uh, you could the, the Apollo spacecraft said, spent something like a quarter of a billion dollars just to slow down. So uh, I, I got interested in the problem. Is, is it possible to get to the moon and use absolutely no fuel at all? To, to get captured well, around the that, moon. I want to get back to the moon situation and the new routes to the moon in just a second because I found that uh, pretty fascinating. But um, yeah. I, I wanted to get – the reason I was eager to have you on the program this morning was because of your work into – and your interest in dark matter. Recently, there's been a lot of news uh, related to dark matter and I have to be honest, I'm not even sure I understand what dark matter is. Can you explain, even in manners, uh, in a manner that someone like me can understand, what is dark matter? Okay, well, no one knows what it is, actually. And I, I just published a pretty, a pretty interesting paper on this with uh, James Green, who's the chief scientist of NASA. And any then, uh, dark matter is an invisible substance. You can't see it. Uh, however, it's got gravity on it. So... Um, just to give you an idea of this, in our galaxy where we live, there's like 200 billion stars. Our sun is just one of them. In our galaxy, if you counted up all the stars, of, of, which is a gigantic number, you took, and you put it on a scale and weighed it, you'd only get 5% of the mass that's actually there. 95% of the mass of our galaxy, we can't see it. We don't even know where it is. So it's, it's an unknown substance. Um, and uh, the paper I just published on it, actually, is the first paper ever to, 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 to come up with a way to directly measure it without actually knowing what it is with a spaceship, seeing how, the, how a spaceship can deflect its orbit and thereby, thereby figure out that dark matter is actually there. But it's totally invisible. And um, uh, there's all kinds of theories about what it is. And, um, you know, it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, the, the, the James Webb Telescope hopefully will get some information about what it might be, but right now it's a complete, it's a complete mystery. But um, basically, it's 90, 98% of our galaxy. So w without exaggerating, when, when, you're, when you're talking to someone across the room, 98% of the room is missing, uh, roughly. Wow, that's something. Now, I know that um, th this has been around, this idea, for a, a while now, and that uh, a lot of physicists have proposed that this invisible substance called dark matter was providing extra gravitational pull, causing the stars to uh, speed up. And that's a theory that a lot of people subscribe to. But then uh, when I was trying to do a little research, I found that there's a whole bunch of scientists, a whole bunch of physicists that don't even believe that dark matter exists. 
How can there be such wide debate among physicists about whether dark matter even exists? Well, well, you know, it's interesting you ask that. That's really interesting because um, if you look at the data, um, it's pretty clear that, that there's a substance there. And they can see it indirectly the way the light deflects around galaxies, distant, distant galaxies. Now, there was a theory for a while which, which sort of disputed this, and I think that's what you're alluding to. It's called the modified theory of gravity, the MON theory. And it basically said that there is nothing there, that actually what's going on is that the gravitational force that we all grew up with, Newton's force, which is the inverse square force, um, is, is actually not accurate when you're getting to, to gigantic things like the galaxy are much bigger than that. And therefore, um, if you try to use that, the, the old gravity that we, we know in the textbooks, if you try to use that to measure the way things are moving in our galaxy, you know, it's not going to work. And you're going to see anomalies. So, so and, and what, what they did observe is that, um, it, is that things moving towards the middle of our galaxy move with a certain velocity. And, 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 if, and if you believe in, in, in uh, Newton's field, uh, that would, it would say that the further out you go, they'd have to go slower and slower. And it turns out they don't. They actually speed up. Hmm. So uh, there's something out there making that happen. And, and they, they say, well, it's, it's due to the fact that you have to modify the field of gravity and there's really nothing there. However, that's been, that's been shown to be not true. Um, it, it's very clear that, uh, that there's been new, new results in astrophysics to show that the mind theory is simply not correct, that, that dark matter is definitely there. Now, the popular science literature seems to be loaded with these articles trying to disprove it. But from what I can see and what was in my last paper, it's simply not true. We're talking with uh, Dr. Edward Belbruno, artist, mathematician, scientist. What are your thoughts on this uh, Hadron Collider? And uh, a lot of people I know were concerned that this could open up a, a portal to another dimension or something along those lines. Is is this collider something that will further the study of dark matter at all? Yeah, yeah, it could because there's a uh, you know no one knows like I said no one knows what the you know excuse my language but no one knows what the hell it is and 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 there's all kinds of strange theories about it but one of them is that it could be a subatomic particle causing it um, uh, a, you know subparticle that's that you can't even see it it's a little tiny particle floating around like a you know, new, proton, neutron, but something in that in that area, and it would have a certain mass, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you need a sufficiently high energy to to really see if these particles are there. So it's possible that the, that the Large Hadron Collider would be able to make those make big enough collisions so they see remnants of the collision and evidence of this particle. And it's totally possible that could happen. Hmm. All right. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your work in developing a new route or maybe new routes to the moon. How many different ways can you go to the moon? I, I would have um, I would have assumed <laughs> that the, the, the quickest way from here to the moon is a straight line. Is that not the case? Yeah, it's pretty much a straight line. It's, 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 it's actually an ellipse, which is highly elongated. But for all practical purposes, if you were looking down on the Earth-Moon system and you went off to the moon on, the, on that route, it would be almost a straight line. And it was developed, actually, in the 1920s by this German engineer called Home. His name was Walter Homan. Um, and uh, it was used in, in all early uh, missions to the moon, et cetera. And, and the disadvantage of that is it gets you there quick. It's great for astronauts. Um, in fact, they used something like that for the Apollo um, however, uh, when you get there, you, you're going really fast, and you have to slow down to go in orbit around the moon. Otherwise, you just fly by, and that, that's the end of you. So um, uh, the slowing down part is very expensive. Um, it's dangerous because you have to slow down. If you don't 
slow down correctly, just fly by the moon. But it's a million dollars a pound for fuel. So um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, it's a quarter of a billion dollars for the Apollo spacecraft to slow down. So I was interested in the problem you know, when I arrived at JPL years ago. Is it possible to, to get something to go to the moon where you don't have to worry about using fuel to go into orbit? So basically it's a trade-off. You can definitely, I found out after some work, um, you can definitely do it. Um, but it takes a lot longer to get there. Instead of taking three days, it takes three months. And I was very, very lucky to be able to justify the theory I cooked up uh, to do this um, when I was almost fired because of my job because I thought my work was not worth it. And and I luckily, this, as the things would line up, I was totally vindicated. Uh, before I actually left JPL, I had, I had the opportunity uh, to actually uh, rescue an errant Japanese lunar mission called HITEN, H-I-T-E-N. And uh, Japan launched this thing to the moon in 1991 in January, and uh, it was two spacecraft going around the Earth. Um, and, and the HITEN spacecraft was the larger one, about the size of a desk, and it was never designed to go to the moon. And a small one attached to it was, and it went off to the moon. It just never made it. And it, you know, it was a failed mission, so they were desperate to save the other one. And as as I was about to leave JPL, I was uh, this engineer James Miller contacted me and said Japan really wants to save their mission. Can your crazy theory work? And and it was one of those moments in my life where uh, I suddenly saw how to do it. Mm. I, all those years, I just suddenly oh that that's how you do that. So we went to the computer, did it, it worked. And about a year later, they actually rescued this Japanese mission and got it to the moon. It took uh, five months to get there. Wow! But it, but it took absolutely no fuel whatsoever to go into orbit so um, it's been now used several times and the current mission which has been in the news the capstone mission is using the same trajectory and what's the capstone mission um it's 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 sending a cubesat to the moon a small little um uh, spaceship um probably not much bigger than a trash can and uh, it's it's going to go when it gets to the moon its goal is going to be to go into a new kind of orbit they've never used before uh, that, that goes around the, the lunar poles, um, and, and it's called a rectilinear halo orbit, and uh, they're going to test out getting into that orbit is really what it's hmm. about. I mean, that's got to make you feel good, developing a route to the moon that's been used to uh, to rescue various craft over the years. That's, that's pretty impressive. I, I know that you hold um, some patents on various space routes, I guess including that one. I didn't even know that you can... Patent a space route? Can I can I patent a shortcut to the to Yankee Stadium or something? <laughs> actually, you could. Um, so the way it works is in the patent industry, uh, you don't actually patent the route to the moon. What you have to patent is the algorithm to actually find it. So it it, it boils down to a computer program, and and you have to you, know, you have to put the program in there. The it's it's like an algorithm. And um, and then you you put in the route that you're doing. You explain why it's important, and and they have to check it out, make sure no one's done that before. But it, it's called an algorithm patent. And and when people patent like these, um, you know, remember that remember that sheep years ago, Dolly, I think, where they they had some. Oh yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. They're the clone sheep. The clone sheep. Supposedly. That process. That's also an algorithm patent, and and they got a patent for doing that by patenting the process. Oh, I see. Okay, that's interesting. Hey, um, do you have a take on why 
um, the United States, why NASA, why America has not been back to the moon since the 1970s. It seemed like there was so much enthusiasm for lunar travel uh, with the Apollo program. And then interest just sort of waned. And then the last few presidents have all talked about going back and we'll see what happens with Artemis. But do you have a take on why it's been a half century since we've been to the moon? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I uh, one, one of my good friends, Neil Tyson, talks about this, too. Um, but, no, I, I have a really good take on this. Uh, so, uh, basically, it was just all politics to begin with. I mean, there was this desire to go. But, but at the time we went in the 70s, early 70s, it was purely to, to, to beat the Soviet Union there. And uh, once that was done, um, they, they just got rid of it because it was too expensive. E- each one of those Saturn V rockets they used to launch to the moon, I don't know the exact price today. I, I can't even begin to estimate. I'm going to guess each one today would probably would have been, you know, well over a billion dollars. So, um, you know, you have to justify keeping those going, and they just didn't want to get into that. Um, also, it was the end of the Cold War. You know, the Cold War was still going on, but they had beat Russia. And then the, the Iranian thing happened with the oil, if you remember, the oil embargo. And uh, we came out of the Vietnam War, and I think it, they were so expensive, they mm. just decided not to do it. And um, instead, they, 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 they did use the Saturn V a little bit to, to make an orbiting space station. But um, after that, they went down the road of the space shuttle, which really, truly was supposed to be a cheap way to get into orbit. And we all know that didn't work as planned. Um, so uh, now it's many years later they're going back to the Saturn V technology for the SLS that the United States has built, um, which is going to be tested soon. It's going to do a figure eight around the moon and show it works. But however, the one that's really hopeful is this SpaceX thing called Starship, which is actually bigger. And um, it would have more capability if, if it does work, and it's still a big question mark. So it so, was—it's primarily—it's primarily a financial reason, and the and not needing the international bragging rights that were so valuable during the Cold War. Yeah, totally bragging rights. All it was, and plus plus the price. I mean, it was sure. just unbelievably because you know it's like. That's why we never put a base on the moon, because if you want to put a base on the moon, you have to supply it, right? I mean, for example, our space station that we have up there right now, people don't know what that costs. That was $100 billion mm. to build the space station. And that's only two, 100 miles up with six people in it. Can you imagine putting a base on the moon with what that's going to cost? No, I can't. <laughs> so I, I don't yeah. care to. So I know you mentioned some optimism about the SpaceX situation. What about the Artemis project that uh, that NASA is uh, is spearheading? Are you optimistic that that could result in a successful mission back to the moon as well? Yeah, I think the Artemis will. I mean, the Artemis, um, you know, it's fully built. Uh, the S- it's called the SLS Space Launch System. It's fully built. Uh, they're going to put a dummy in there and have it go around the moon. I mentioned before, so it it probably hopefully keep your fingers crossed it'll work. If that test works in a few months, then they probably would be able to soft land something on the moon again. But I'm not going to hold my breath because they still have to develop the landing craft for that. Mm, the landing, remember, they had that. For, they don't even have that, as far as I know. So um, even if the even if the SLS works uh, as a first step to show you we have a launch vehicle that at least get us to the moon for people. You still have to get down there and back to the surface, back to the spaceship again. And uh, that could be another several years before that, that that's ironed sure. out. So um, I say, yes, it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Probably, I, you know, 
I probably give another five years, maybe even longer, if, if they stick with it. But you know, NASA's been known and to just drop a project. Um, they've done big space projects, which were the rocket was all developed. They just stopped it. So that's totally possible. You, you know, when we think of scientists, mathematicians, we think of people that use one side of their brain. And then when we think of uh, artists, writers, poets, we think of people that tend to use another side of uh, their brain. You've been pretty accomplished in both fields. Tell me about your work as an artist, uh, what you've done in terms of, of your painting and your artistry, and how your fondness for science and mathematics has informed your artistry. Oh boy, that, yeah, that's a, um, actually it's it's so funny. It's actually the other way around. So um, the route to the moon, I, I told you, I developed. I did that via painting, believe it or not. Um, I had to go to the computers You're and actually kidding. figure it out. But it was wow. inspired by a painting. It was the painting actually gave rise to the science? But uh, I I did my first serious painting when I was like uh, five years old. It was a spaceship, and it came out so good that when I had an art show in New York City, a group show about five years ago, they featured that to advertise the whole group show. So I had this natural talent as a young kid to, to want to do painting, and um, it just came out of nowhere. And, and I knew what to buy. I knew what to use. I didn't even need any training in it. And I had my first art show when I was like you know 18 years old. And uh, my earlier paintings definitely had a sort of a spacey kind of theme, but, I, but surrealistic. I can't really describe it. But um, um, I, I did it, uh, you know, throughout my early college years, and I took time off when I went to graduate school. But when I finished graduate school, it just came back with a vengeance out of nowhere, and I did these incredible starscapes um, that just came out of nowhere. I mean, I, I just beautiful, beautiful starscapes. And before I knew it, my art career was, was relaunched um, in my mid-20s, hmm. and I had a bunch of shows in Boston, L.A., and um, NASA headquarters of Washington has a piece of mine hanging in the executive director's office. Um, and uh, uh, they were more realistic-looking pieces, a little bit surrealistic. But people looked at them, and they just said, these are sort of desolate, bleak, but beautiful landscapes at all at the same time. But the new work I'm doing now is, is uh, uh, very colorful, uh, bright. Uh, I can't describe them. They're sort of uh, exp- abstract expressionist. But um, – very bright colors and and uh, people just love them actually. But um, in large, I mean, I just finished one seven by eight feet. Mm. But um, but last year I did a whole sequence of black and white ones, and they, they were my my reaction to the whole COVID nightmare. And um, I did a whole sequence of black and white paintings of just these dystopian, desolate backgrounds, landscapes, and. Um, and and they just are stunning, and people are just like deer in headlights looking at them, you know, because they just they, they look at them saying, "I've never seen this before, yeah. but I recognize it," you know. So, um, no, but I, but I want, yeah, I'm no, sure. that's terrific. And by the way, people could see some of your artwork on your website at uh, edbelbruno.com. That's uh, with one L, edbelbruno.com. There's also a really interesting documentary about your whole uh, artistry situation called Painting the Way to the Moon, which has gotten great reviews, even won some awards. Mention it uh, does feature uh, a lot of uh, a lot of your artwork in there. People are just tuning in. We are talking with Edward Belbruno. In addition to his work with uh, the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, he has been uh, or is a clinical professor of mathematics at Yeshiva University and a visiting research collaborator at Princeton University. Now, let me ask you about this, uh, Ed, because this is something that a lot of people that are as highly, highly accomplished in academia as you are 
tend to shy away from talking about. You had a very interesting encounter with a UFO back in 1991. What happened? Well, uh, yeah, so um, um, most people don't want to talk about things like that, but in the current environment uh, with the UAPs that have now been seen by the Navy, as everyone knows, and the Air Force has now said they're there. They see, you know, I saw mine, you know, but this was pretty dramatic. I mean, uh, I was uh, leaving L.A. actually and uh, driving from L.A. After, after that experience I had rescuing that Japanese lunar spacecraft, I needed a little bit of a break. Uh, so um, I, I left L.A. in my car, put some of my paintings in it, and drove to, to St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, as I was driving cross-country with a, with a companion, uh, uh, we, we drove up through Las Vegas and then up into Wyoming. And then um, pretty much around 10 o'clock at night uh, was a was Casper, Wyoming, and I wanted to go directly north to a bunch of hotels just to get a good night's sleep. And my partner wanted to take this bleak little road. It was a nothing road um, up by Casper. Just said, insist that we take this road. And I said, if you want to do that, I will. But I'm not, you know, so I took it. And uh, it was just this small road that went about 75 miles um, to the other side of the state. And I did that. And um, it was very, I had to go really slow. And I noticed I was driving from like 10 o'clock to around midnight, I guess. Uh, or 1130, and there wasn't a single car past me in either direction, which I thought was kind of strange. Um, but it was very balmy night um, and, and so on and so forth. So we got to Thunder Basin, and uh, which is this basically depression in the ground. It's like uh, sagebrush all over the place, and just uh, there was a, it was a moonless night, and um, I, I, we, we sort of descended into this, this, this depression. And um, as we did, I saw an extremely bright uh, red light um, off in the distance at the bottom of the bowl that we were going into. And, and you know, I see something like a very bright light. And, and uh, um, I, I, I said to my friend, uh, what the heck is that? I mean, you know, it's about 11, 11 o'clock at night, and I see this. And uh, um, I, I um, uh, slowed down a little bit, and I looked off, and I, there it was. You know, I said, so I'm trying to find excuses for this. So I said, well, you know, it's probably a, a construction site. Now, in retrospect, a construction site in a Thunder Basin National Grasslands at 11 o'clock at night just was ridiculous, but I had to find some reason for that. So I got to the bottom, and the road leveled off, and it's right in front of me, and this gigantic light. And I noticed it was not just a light at this point. It was huge. It was a it was like the side of a building, and it was in the middle of the road. It blocked my, it blocked the road. I could not go around it. In fact, I noticed it was a, it was a black rectangle. It was a perfect rectangle, boundary of a rectangle, suspended off of the ground, sitting on the back of something much bigger, which was a, which was the back of some object, and it was sitting there. So I just stopped the car. And I'm, I said to my friend, you know, I was spellbound. I said, I obviously never saw anything like this, saw anything like this in my life, and she didn't either. And um, I said, I can't go. I'm not going around this. And then it 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 lifted off of the ground. The thing just floated up. It wow. didn't make any noise, and uh, it went up maybe 50 feet in the air, and and just hovered there over the ground. This big red rectangle on the back of this gigantic thing it was like 40 feet by 40 feet, and the rectangle was in the middle of it. So my friend says, why don't you go out and go under it, right? And I said, why don't you go under it? I said, I'm not going near that thing. It's, it's, I, don't even, I don't know what this is, right? I was, I was completely blown away by this because it was so quiet. 
And then it turned sideways, and what we were looking at was the back of it. It was the back of an object that was probably 100 feet long, and that was the very back of it. And when it, when it turned around, it was about 120 feet long, and it sort of glowed blue in the middle and just sat there over the road. And, and it did a little bit of a motion like it was almost like announcing itself, and then it slowly went north. And when it got far out of sight where I could see it go up towards the mountains, I got out. And I'm just standing there in the middle of the road looking at this. My Jeep is sitting there with the lights off. And I said, this is like something out of a movie. I mean, no one would ever believe this. So um, that was my part of the experience. I was part of it. And uh, what I did notice was um, uh, uh, when I finally went to St. Paul, Minnesota and, and recuperated from that, um, after that spacecraft got to the moon that I had designed for uh, – for, for, for the Japanese, Carl Sagan, who ran the Planetary Society mm-hmm. at the time in Pasadena, he asked he wanted me to write a story for his magazine on, on this rescue. And I did. And this is a few months later now. So I'm writing the article. And I said, yeah, I said, October 2nd, 1991, the Japanese spacecraft arrived at the moon on this trajectory I found. And then I just stopped and said, wait a minute. That was, the, the time that that happened in in the time it actually got there was a time I saw that thing on the road. Whoa, whoa! Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I'm way late here, uh, but you got to come back next week uh, because uh, that raises a whole lot of questions. Uh, maybe we can continue this conversation next week. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. that. That'd yeah, be great. To, that'd be uh, great. Yeah, yeah. I want to encourage everybody to check out your your website. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Edward Bell Bruno. You can check out his uh, his biography and his, some of his artwork at edbellbruno.com. Bell Bruno with one L. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, coming up, we still got a lot to get to. Uh, coming up, we'll do the AC report, and um, Brian Kilmeade will be here, and I'll take your calls next hour on uh, any of the subjects that we've covered. 800-848-9222. Wide open lines if you want to comment. By the way, one question that I've gotten um, a, actually a surprising number of inquiries about over the course of the last week and a half has been regarding the Ikea screw that came with the daybed that I put in my office. If you didn't get to hear our discussion on this, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we, had this, we had this daybed delivered into my office, which is going to double as a guest bed as well. It's sort of a couch slash bed, right? So, um, the, by the way, this, these were the guys that demanded a tip after they weren't tipped uh, when I was asleep. All right. So I put this thing together, 
and there's no there's a screw that's missing. There's a screw that's faulty, I guess, is the best thing. It doesn't have any ridges on it. It doesn't have any threading on it. So we call and complain, nothing, 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 until that was yesterday. After at least a week and a half, finally, this screw, which was supposed to come with this daybed, has finally arrived after multiple inquiries of find, trying to find out where this stupid screw is, IKEA has delivered on their promise. So big thank you to IKEA. Better late than never. That's my philosophy. All right. Uh, so for those of you that have been asking about that, now you know the rest of the story. We'll get into a whole lot more in just a moment. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano, and I will tell you there are a lot of problems in the workplace that get a lot of attention. Discrimination in the workplace, that gets a lot of attention. Inappropriate remarks to a subordinate, that gets a lot of attention. A lot of uh, forms of harassment at work are pretty obvious, but others, not so much. I came across this really interesting article in The Hustle. Do you read The Hustle? The Hustle is this newsletter that I subscribe to, and I get so many great ideas for talk topics from it each each and every day. And if you actually do want to subscribe to it, you can go to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Fan. I just posted the link, and, you know, I'm not trying to beg here, but I am now only five referrals away from getting a free The Hustle t- uh, sweatshirt. So if five more people sign up using this link that I just posted, I will be wearing a complimentary The Hustle t- sweatshirt. And look, winter's going to be here before you know it. And wouldn't it be nice if I were wearing a sweatshirt when winter came around? All right. But that's neither here nor there. There is this new trend where... People at work have experienced gaslighting. Now, I'll be honest with you. Gaslighting is one of these terms that people have thrown around my whole life. And I always nod like I pretend that I understand what it means when in actuality I really have no idea what gaslighting means. And I've seen the film Gaslight. And, you know, the back when in the days of the Lux Radio Theater, which my friend, the late, great Joe Franklin, used to play midnight every Saturday – on uh, another radio station, he used to do these movies on the radio. The, and it was really cool. I wish they would do more of that now. But you'd see uh, great films like Deadline at Dawn. And one of the ones that he put on the radio was Gaslight. So I saw both the film Gaslight, never saw the play, but and the heard the movie on the radio. So Gaslighting is based on a play called Gaslight from 1938, where the main character's husband, over time, convinces her that she was going insane. She wasn't. It was all him. 
So since the term fits the bill, people and even psychologists use it to identify this behavior. The behavior is a form of psychological manipulation where the abuser denies their actions are causing harm or convinces you that your perception of reality is incorrect. Now, some gaslighters can be very charming, very convincing, making them very difficult to identify as abusive. But listen to this. One poll shows that 58% of people have experienced gaslighting at work. Another study finds that while 30 to 50% of leaders are transformational, 8 to 10% are essentially toxic and completely unlikely to change. So some leaders at work pretend to help you advance only to give your promotion, what you perceive to be your promotion, to someone else. That could be an example of gaslighting. But an unhealthy working environment is bad for business, as everybody knows. People don't quit jobs, the old adage goes. They quit bosses. So if you're in the workplace, it's worth training your managers, if you're in a position to do so, to identify and combat gaslighting to ensure that your workers are put in a position to thrive. I am curious whether you're a boss or you're just a a rank-and-file employee like I am, or you're somewhere in between. Have you ever experienced this? Can you think of an example of your being a victim of gaslighting at work, whether it's from a coworker or your boss? What happens? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. In the annals of fictional bad bosses, I think the prototypical example has got to be Bill Lumberg from the movie Office Space. We have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I I forgot. Mm, Yeah. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot, but uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. (laughs) So I I don't know that Bill Lumberg is guilty of gaslighting there. I think he's really just guilty of being a stickler and being annoying. But if you've been the victim of gaslighting, if you have an example from your own life in the workplace, either currently or years ago, I'd love to hear it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. A common way, evidently, for a gaslighter to manipulate a victim is by using indirect communication. They might purposely misguide the victim or omit important information when giving instructions. For instance, a worker's absent and the boss asks you to present at the upcoming meeting. He gives you the slides, but no context as to the purpose of the presentation. So when you present the project, you're not prepared for the client's questions. Sometimes the gaslighter claims they said something entirely different than what the victim remembers, making them feel like they heard wrong. That's happened to me. And you know what? It's the worst thing in the world when someone does that to you, to intentionally make you look bad or to undermine you. When done often enough, the victim might feel like they're going crazy or that something's wrong with them.
Uh, one example that's in this article in The Hustle is a coworker makes inappropriate remarks to you, so you bring it up with your manager. But when the coworker tells their side of their story, they make up an entirely different story and challenge your recollection of events. That's happened to me as well. Actually, I don't know that that version has happened to me, but I've I've had things like that. The goal is to make you seem like you're incompetent or forgetful, so everyone, including yourself, second guesses what actually happened. So evidently, somewhere between 30 and 58% of us are experiencing this. I'm curious if you're part of that 58%. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Hopefully, you're currently in a situation where you're managed by somebody a little bit more understanding and caring than Bill Lumberg. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Um... I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around 9, that would be great. Okay? Oh, oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, I'm also going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday, too. Okay? We uh, lost some people this week, and uh, we need to sort of play catch-up. Thanks. I mean, you just feel annoyed by listening to Lumberg. But gaslighting signs can be subtle and occasionally kind of difficult to detect. So here are a couple of the signs in this article in The Hustle that you might see from gaslighting bosses or subordinates, either one. It's very common for gaslighting to occur between a person of power and a subordinate. The boss can claim to be the right one, and no one can say otherwise. I had a boss like that. Basically, if you were to question any decision that he made, his attitude was, I'm the boss. That's, that's the way we're doing it. No need for explanation or anything like that. And when left unchecked, this can turn into consistent gaslighting. So some behavior from gaslighting bosses could include avoiding transparency to throw you off guard. For example... Inviting an employee to an event that's only for board members or has a specific dress code but doesn't disclose that. That happened to me one time, and it's very uncomfortable. Never recording meeting minutes or notes so that they can flip-flop later. I know somebody that does that. For example, changing what was said at meetings to place blame on others when the goals aren't met. Disregarding policies unless it helps the business. For example, not following up on an employee complaint that can hurt the company's reputation. Not providing full details. For example, not disclosing all the information a worker might need to complete a project. Frequently changing goalposts or job descriptions without reason to place blame on employees who underachieve. But it's also occasionally done, and that's why... uh, Let me check in over at our busy phones. All right, well, it's good. It's giving uh, Kenneth an opportunity to finish the ship in a bottle he's been working on. But uh, I'm curious, this also happens with subordinates. And that's why I'd love to hear from some bosses as as well at 800-848-9222. The office politics are very commonplace, and that can often lead to coworkers gaslighting one another to gain positions of power. It's a tactic some people use to kick others to gain advantage. You know, the promotion is the most obvious example. Stealing credit for someone's work. That's big. Causing problems between colleagues. 
That's big. I know somebody that does that, and it's the worst. Intimidating colleagues. Uh, one, that's one way they get away with stealing credit for their work or creating false stories about colleagues. Or just, you know what the worst thing is, is destroying a coworker's confidence. Like when you're questioning their methods, even if they're correct, or undermining their complaints, even though they're legitimate. So I'd love to hear yours. It can happen with managers gaslighting employees, coworkers gaslighting one another, or group gaslighting. For example, managers or coworkers ganging up on an employee. Talk to me, 800-848-9222. I would hate to see uh, you end up like Milton as the victim of Bill Lumberg. Milton? Yes. What's happening? I wanted to say, hey, Milton, you know what would be great? Wait, no. Since you're down here, it would be really great if you could it, just sort of... Take care of the cockroach problem we've been having in here. No, that's really not my job, and I, I haven't received my so, piece For now, why don't you go ahead and get yourself a flashlight and a can of pesticide and crawl back. Bill? I'd love to hear your examples if you have them. 800-848-9222. Robert's in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Oh, good morning, Frank. Morning. Enjoying, enjoying the show. Thank you. Uh, I have an example of gaslighting. It was not done to me, but someone else, a coworker, swore that this was happening. And I never saw it, so I couldn't back that coworker up. But moving things around on a person so that it seems like they're always losing something, misplacing things, that could drive people nuts. Hmm. Uh, and do you think that the person that that was being done to, they were doing it for that reason? I think so. We had kind of a vindictive boss who didn't like people to excel, oddly enough, and belittled people. And you wouldn't get promotions like you thought you would from that person, the supervisor or, or manager of the department. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Okay. I could buy that. 800-848-9222. Fran in Queens. Hello. Yeah. Hi, Frank. I... Uh... I consider this gaslighting, excuse me, I worked for an insurance company, and they were all men except me, and I was a secretary, and I did a million other things, the only woman in there, and I was, they were always uh, getting at me in various ways, and uh, to stay friendly with one another, so they brought a new insurance man in, the company did. And we all shared the same bathroom. And um, this new insurance man wanted to help out, and he cleaned the coffee pot out in the bathroom that we all shared. Now, that was something that I usually did because nobody else wanted to bother. But he was being nice. And here's what happened. They didn't want him to do that, but they didn't want to tell him. They didn't want to bring him on the carpet. So instead, in his presence, one of the guys and the other guys were sitting around said, Fran, you got to stop throwing that coffee down <laughs> the sink. You just got to do that. You're not, you're not supposed to, but you know better. And he's giving me such a hard time when actually the guy was sitting right in front of him and could hear everything. And he was the one who had done it. 
And did, what happened? Did you say if that wasn't me doing that? I guess no, I, I, I guess I that guy never came forward and said. I, no, he he was a very nice guy. He did not come forward, and uh, I, I I didn't really do much of anything. But to show you, I didn't blame him. The poor man got sick and died eventually, and I was the only one who went to his funeral. Mm. But I think that that was a form of gaslighting. And it happened to me all the time. I think it's a good example, actually. I do, too. I think think? that's perfect. And uh, I think if somebody wasn't as strong-willed as you are, that would have had uh, a much more deleterious effect on their uh, their workplace productivity. Fran, Fran, that's great. Thank you for – not great that it happened, but it's a great example. I appreciate you sharing that. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. 800-848-9222. You know know what I've noticed is – a lot of folks are really into creating inter-office rivalries. They love to tell you, oh, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so really doesn't like you. So-and-so is always, always talking about you. I, I don't see how that's helpful at all in terms of creating a more uh, productive uh, workplace. Hey, speaking of people that I find uh, completely unproductive – I, a little bit later, I had this on my list for yesterday, but a little bit later, th- I, I have to play you this incredible um, piece of uh, audio of John Bolton, who I, I think is a, a – I, I don't want to use the kind of word that I'd like to to describe John Bolton. I don't, I, don't lo- I don't have a high degree of respect for John Bolton. I'll say that. Um, I watched this – interview that he did with uh, Jake Tapper. And I find it absolutely amazing. I'm going to play that for you in a little bit. Uh, One of the things that we're going to talk about when Brian Kilmeade gets here is the President Biden heading to the Middle East. He's going to the Middle East. He's going to visit Israel. He's going to go to the West Bank. He's going to fly to Saudi Arabia. And I... Don't know if you saw the piece that um, 60 Minutes did on Saudi Arabia Sunday evening, but they did this interview with Syed al-Jabri. He is the former second-in-command of Saudi intelligence who said this about the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who I want you to understand as you listen to this, we are about to see our president literally bow and literally kiss the Saudi princes as he begs them to pump more oil. He's also there to try and normalize diplomatic relations between the Saudis and uh, and Israel. But this is what Syed al-Jabri said on 60 Minutes uh, about Mohammed bin Salman Sunday. I am here to sound the alarm about a psychopath killer in the Middle East with infinite resources who poses threat to his people, to the Americans, and to the planet. Now, I obviously, he's a little jaded because he's no longer part of the in-crowd now, but I watched his comments, and I found him very credible. And, you know... The It's been reported that um, Jamal Khashoggi's widow said that uh, that uh, Biden 
promised her that he's going to mention the murder of Jamal Khashoggi when he meets with Mohammed bin Salman. Give me a break. He's not going to mention anything. You know, If he mentions it, it's going to be like, oh, it's a real shame what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. Hey, how about pumping some more oil? That's going to be what you're going to experience. Or it's one of those things, hey, if anybody asks, I mentioned Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, that's what you're going to see. Uh, I don't think this is going to be high on the list of things that Biden brings up with the Saudis at all. Uh, they are holding all the cards right now. So I don't see that happening uh, at all. I really think, and I've been covering this at length, I really think that the Saudi opposition to knowing the full truth about what happened to September 11th should give all of us a pretty good idea of the kind of the the methods that the Saudis use in how they conduct business. So uh, I really am eager to see what happens in the Middle East, but who knows? All right. Uh, I do want to mention also before we go that, uh, well, actually, we're running a little short on time. Let me take a quick break and we'll continue with your, your calls in uh, just a minute. Well, w- w- let me squeeze in one more call on the gaslighting subject. Ina is on the West Side. Hello, Ina. Thank you, my Frankie. Thank you, Frank. Frank, it happening in family. Right now, it's happening to me. And out of nowhere, they're just attacking me. But I'm going to, I'm going to work it, it, you know, take care of it. And I'm going to go to a different state. Well, so what's happening? Tell me what's happening. There's a family member um, trying to trying to um, use me, and I'm going to my friends to get favors and stuff like that, and and behind my back, you know, because you know I I tell her, you know, in the, you know just talking, I and I mention name, she go behind my back and and getting favors from them and stuff like that, so. Right, you know, and it's it's causing me a lot of problem with my son. My son, you know, very very upset. So, but I'm gonna work it out. I'm calmly, and I'm gonna drop everyone and go by myself someplace nice. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck, uh, Ina. Obviously, it's it's always a difficult thing when you're dealing with family. You know what, though? Families, I hate to say it this way, families almost, you expect there to be a lot of stress in dealing with families, uh, a lot of personal issues and things of that nature. When you go to work, you don't expect to be the victim of gaslighting. And apparently, though, 58% of people in the workplace, possibly as many as 58%, are. And that's that's a real shame. And uh, I'd hope to get a few better examples but uh, whatever, as as the best laid wishes, as the best laid plans of Mice and Moranos go, they don't always come to fruition. All right. In just a moment, we are going to do something really fun. And we'll continue with your calls at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
the president is going to the Middle East in the hopes of uh, getting a little bit more gasolina. And uh, we, a lot of us are hoping that he'll be successful because we want to bring down the price of gasoline. But it is very interesting that uh, President Trump was very honest about sort of the mercenary relationship that the United States has with Saudi Arabia. And Biden is now essentially saying the same thing. I mean, you remember uh, back when Biden was running in the Democratic primaries back in 2020, he was in a debate. It was on MSNBC, moderated by, I think it was Andrea Andrea Mitchell. And he was asked about uh, if he was elected president, how he would treat the Saudis. Mr. Vice President, the CIA has concluded that the leader of Saudi Arabia directed the murder of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The State Department also says the Saudi government is responsible for executing nonviolent offenders and for torture. President Trump has not punished senior Saudi leaders. Would you? Yes. And I said it at the time. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered. And I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. And I would also, as pointed out, I would end, end the subsidies that we have, end the sale of material to the Saudis, where they're going in and murdering children and they're murdering innocent people. And so they have to be held accountable. And with regard to China... None of that has happened. Uh, the president is not making them an international pariah. He has not reduced subsidies. He's not doing anything to stop them from killing children. He's going there. He's going to give further international legitimacy to this regime. And he's going to beg them for a favor. And in 2018, Trump said essentially, yeah, sure, it's terrible that Khashoggi was killed. But our close partnership with the Saudis is too valuable to sever that relationship. Now, the pundits all went hysterical. That is exactly... What Biden is now saying to justify exactly the same decision, this U.S.-Saudi partnership shows that the U.S. doesn't care at all if other countries are democratic or despotic. So keep that in mind whenever you hear uh, criticism of Putin or uh, Kim Jong-un or anybody else. It only cares that other countries' regimes serve U.S. interests. Uh, Trump's only sin in the eyes of the pundit class was he was honest about it. So Greenwald, uh, Glenn Greenwald is a progressive journalist that I have a lot of respect for. And and I always look to read his writings. And he is somebody that has been very consistent on this. And he's pointed out that months after Biden assumed his role, After the clip that I just played for you, where he said they're going to make Saudis into a pariah, he sold air-to-air missiles to the Saudis, violating his own promises. So he's going to visit Saudi Arabia in a bid to tame the domestic oil market. Doesn't look to me like uh, he's making them a pariah. So we will see what happens. We will see where this particular trip goes. Hey, by the way... uh, 
the inf- inflation, which is now 9% June, year over year, is not only hitting the world of uh, oil, but something very important to me, which some folks feel I haven't complained enough about. The postage stamp increased in price this week. It now, for a first-class stamp to mail a letter, it now costs 60 cents from 58 cents. Used to be 58 cents as of Monday, it's 60 cents. Postcard stamps increased to 44 uh, 44 cents from 40 cents, and uh, the cost of shipping international letters increased 10 cents to $1.40. Now, here is something. We have somebody listening to this show that's an expert in everything. Uh, It's not one person, but we have a bunch of people that are experts in a bunch of different subjects. Economics, politics, foreign affairs, whatever. Here's my question. Um, The post office sells something called forever stamps, where you can buy a stamp at the current price and use it forever. Now, they always say whenever there's a post office increase, a postage uh, stamp increase, they always say it doesn't make sense to stockpile forever stamps because adjusted for inflation, you're paying about the same amount of money. Here's what I wonder, and this is not an academic exercise. This is something I'm genuinely curious about. Does it make sense if inflation is going to continue for a while to go at the rate it's going? Does it make sense for me to go to the post office? And I know I probably should have done this last Friday instead of today. Does it make sense for me to go to the post office and load up on just hundreds of forever stamps so that I'm okay the next time this post office, uh, this postage stamp increase happens. Now, again, the smart thing would have been for me to load up when they were 58 cents on Friday, but I uh, had forgotten that Monday was D-Day. But does it make sense for me to go now, or should I wait until it looks like there's a there's a price hike announced? If you have an idea on the economics of this from a personal perspective, uh, give me a uh, call at 800-848-9222 because I'm getting I'm best I'm betting other people have had the uh, same idea or you can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com that's frank.morano at wabcradio.com one of the things that uh, I enjoy doing when making reservations is using the website open table you familiar with open table open table's great it's um it's a website where you can go on and you can find, let's say you want to go to a Mexican restaurant in Midtown, right, in New York. But it's all over the country, I think, maybe even all over the world, but certainly all over the country I've used it. You can then type in reservation for four, Friday evening, 8 p.m., Midtown West, Mexican, okay? And then it brings you anything that uh, fits that description. And you, it's an easy way to make a reservation without having to research what restaurant do you want to go to, what restaurant is available, then go and see if they have reservations available. It brings you all the available reservations. It's great. I really enjoy the website. I've been using it for years. One of the things that I've liked about it is that you earn points. And I didn't realize until yesterday when I was trying to make a a bunch of reservations for our forthcoming trip to Cape May that a whole bunch of my open table reservation points expired a couple of months ago. I had racked up thousands of points, and you could use the points towards the price of your dinner bill. 
Now those points are just gone. I, I don't know if I can appeal to a higher open table authority. I don't think that I can, but um, it's really quite annoying. I, I feel like I earned these points through spending a lot of money at these restaurants and through always using the open table platform. And now here they're gone. I feel like there should be some wiggle room with the pandemic. During the pandemic, there was wiggle room on everything. There was delays in filing your tax returns. There was delays in uh, in, in everything. They, they suspended the regents exams in New York. You don't even have to take the regents. And yet the one thing that still there was no pause on was these open table points. So I... Um, I found that that put me in a really sour mood yesterday. The other thing, when I was trying to make all these uh, open table reservations, there are some restaurants that require you to give a credit card when you make the reservation. I got to tell you, I really, I guess I see why they do it because they don't want people making reservations and then not uh, going along with them. But I find that really irritating. Because I didn't have my wallet on me at the time that I was making all these reservations. So that I would have to go into the house, find a credit card in my wallet, go back into where I was, which happened to be on my porch, and make all these reservations using a credit card. So that was that was pretty irritating as well, I must say. All right. Uh, if you want to participate in the conversation virtually, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Or... You can uh, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. There's also, if you do like our Facebook page on there, you will uh, receive an invite to join our Facebook group, which is where we post all of the uh, music that we play on a daily basis. So uh, that Facebook group, if you just want to join that, is uh, facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And you can join the group and not only participate in the discussion about the show, but you can uh, see all the great songs that we're playing on a regular basis. Now, um, on Instagram, where you could find me at Morano Vision, I did share a recent photo of uh, Carmine's first trip to Atlantic City, and that photo is getting rave reviews. So if you want to see a photo of seven-month-old young Carmine, you can do so by finding me on Instagram at Morano Vision. 800-848-9222. Paul is in Queens. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frank. Great show tonight. Um, Gold member was actually injured in a smelting accident, not a smoldering accident. (laughs) That's very funny. That's very funny. That's that's the guy. How long was that guy on hold? Was he on hold 20 minutes to say that that guy was not on hold for 20 minutes? Say, My goodness, that's dedication. Whew. I mean, in the future, if you have a joke like that, the better thing to do is just send me the joke and I'll not only deliver it better than you might, but I'll give you credit and you won't have to wait on hold 20 minutes. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm thrilled that you did. But still, I mean, that's uh, that's a bit much. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, coming up next hour, we'll do the AC report, and then we will talk with Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, of course, is the uh, anchor of Fox & Friends, and uh, he's somebody that we're very lucky to have as a regular weekly contributor to the show, and he knows about uh, a great many subjects, so we'll pick his brain 
on a wide variety of materials. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. Seven open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm humming it all day. It's not quite Mr. Davalina, but it's it's right up there. This was, in my world, Mr. Davalina before Mr. Davalina was. A couple of pieces, one piece of good news and one piece of interesting news, and then uh, we'll get to your calls in just a moment, 800-848-9222. Uh, I think this is great news, something that Congress has done. The House on Wednesday, vote the House of Representatives, on Wednesday, voted to create a secure government system for reporting UFOs and to compel current and former officials to reveal what they might know about the mysterious phenomena by promising to protect them from reprisal. This was a bipartisan amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, passed by voice vote without debate, And it's part of an aggressive effort to exert more oversight over an enduring intelligence gathering challenge that has gained more attention in recent years. It was proposed by Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher and Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego, who've been among a vocal bipartisan block of lawmakers pressing Pentagon and intelligence officials to take the issue a bit more seriously and to be more transparent with Congress and the American people. So Gallagher couched the effort in national security terms, saying that his primary interest is to ensure that our military and intelligence community are armed with the best possible information. But he also wants to further Congress's ability to fact gather. I think this is a great step. You know, as I was researching Edward Belbruno, who was on the program in the first hour, he the thing that's interesting to me about that really compelling UFO sighting that he had was initially he wrote about it, he gave interviews about it, but he wouldn't give his name. He, was, he did it all anonymously because he was embarrassed. Here's this NASA PhD, this professor at Princeton, NYU graduate, guy that's consulting on uh, the Galileo project, the guy's designing routes to the moon. He doesn't want to be seen as some crackpot that sees spaceships. And isn't that a shame? How many people out there has that stigma kept from coming forward and that refusal to come forward think of how that has retarded 
the exploration of this subject. So I I say this is great what uh, the House of Representatives has done here. Um, this is just absolutely ridiculous. Now we've we've covered Sasquatch a little bit, Bigfoot a little bit. I I think for me the jury is still out on whether or not there are big feet running around or in the United States somewhere. But this story comes to us from Oklahoma. The uh, a father and th- this is really crazy. An Oklahoma man killed his friend, and apparently he is saying Bigfoot made him do it. Now. Larry Sanders, nothing to do with the television character, was or Bernie Sanders' brother. Bernie Sanders' brother is named Larry Sanders. Larry Sanders was arrested for the murder of his fishing partner, who he says had summoned Bigfoot to off him, according to police. So they a day out hand fishing for catfish in Oklahoma has turned into a murder investigation after a man claims Bigfoot forced him to kill his friend. So this is a 53-year-old man, Larry Sanders. He's charged with first-degree murder after admitting first to a family member and then later to police to killing his fishing partner, Jimmy Knighton, who Sanders claimed wanted him dead by the hand of the mythical monster Bigfoot. So the local sheriff, John Christian, told the media that Sanders appeared to be under the influence of something. Gee, you think so? There's a shock. Christian said that the confession always makes it easier, but that the difficulty came in trying to find Knighton's body, which had floated on the river currents and was not discovered until more than 24 hours after the incident. So, uh, you know, different defenses work differently, right? Marion Barry... The defense was the blank set me up. He came back and was elected mayor. Dan White, the San Francisco supervisor who murdered Mayor Moscone and uh, Harvey Milk, played by uh, Mr. Josh Brolin in that film, Milk. Remember, he used the Twinkie defense. And that was, to some extent, successful as a legal strategy. It remains to be seen if the Bigfoot defense will have the same sort of resonance. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Great show. How are you doing tonight? Doing well, thanks. Uh, about the stamps, I was a little bit shocked, too. I didn't uh, hear anything about it. They uh, they basically kept it, I think, under the wraps. But the two cents, you can't complain. But what would upset me the most? Uh, I'm like you. I, I mail stuff. I write checks. My bank told me that if I maintain at least $1,000 in my account, I get free checking. Now, I always have about 1500 to $2,000 $2, in there. All of a sudden, the bank decides, no, we're going to do away with that after the pandemic, and we're going to start charging you for checks. And I sat down with my wife, and I'm saying to myself, you know, the stamp went up to $0.60. Cents. Now, checks are $20 a box. I'm just better off doing online banking or just calling in my payments and saving a hell of a lot of money. Uh, what bank do you use? Chase. Well, I have to I deal with TD well, Bank. Well, the, the, uh, the one that reneged on this free checking for $1,000. 
um, it was Chase. I called them. I complained. They told me they would refund um, the charge this time. And Joe, I lost you, Joe. Like you know, I oh. think... what happened? No, no. Okay, I got you back now. I couldn't hear you for a second. No, so um, it was um, they 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 credited me the money, but still, I think it's ridiculous, Frank. You know, I have an IRA with them. I have a lot of stuff with them, and uh, to, to nail somebody for twenty dollars a month for checks and stuff, I think it's ridiculous. Have a great night, Frank. Hey, thank you, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Elizabeth is here in Manhattan. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Frank. Um, my husband is Lebanese, was Lebanese. He passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. He dealt with all the uh, uh, Kuwaiti princes, <clears throat> and they're a much nicer group than the Saudi Arabians. And uh, But still, uh, they are difficult to deal with, and you have to walk on thin ice, and you have to be very careful what you say. And certain words can't be said, and the sentence has to be structured a certain way, and Biden's going to blow it. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, I, look, the, the Saudis want to have their way with the United States, and they're in a very good position because of what's happening with energy prices right now. So, my look, Biden wants two things out of this meeting. He wants credit for normalization of diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia and Israel, and he wants lower energy prices. So I have a feeling that he's going to give away the store uh, on this. If it means selling more weapons that can be then used to kill innocent men, women, and children in Yemen, I have a, a feeling that he will have no problem with that at all. So uh, I think all the rhetoric that we heard on this subject in the campaign, I think it was a lot of hogwash, to be honest. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Palm Bay, Florida. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. A uh, long time? Not really, but um, I wanted to ask you, have you ever interviewed Bob Lazar? Uh, no. I've interviewed Jeremy Corbell, who made the film about Bob Lazar. I've tried to get Bob on the show, and it's been uh, very difficult. I have not had any luck getting him on the show. He seems like a, a difficult uh, gentleman to, uh, you know, not very well. Anyways, but I, I, from what he describes, I don't think that that kind of thing could be made up. Um, anyways, uh, that being said, uh, it would be great if you could have him on. Um, another thing uh, with your cat, with the. Uh, Cancer, I do. There is. I lost my dog. Uh, they just came out with a new procedure, and it was called uh, Phytocure. So they actually take the DNA from the dog. I'm sure that this can be used with the cat as well. Well, that's interesting. I, I, we have a meeting with the uh, oncologist on uh, the 19th, so I will... Uh... I will certainly inquire about that. Yeah, so I'm an animal lover, and I hope everything works out well. Uh, Blue Pearl is excellent in downtown Brooklyn, and Red Bank in Jersey as well. Thank you, Corey. Gary is in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Frank. Uh, a stamp situation I find very peculiar. 
approximately two months ago going to my mailbox. And along with my other mail was a brown, old-fashioned brown manila envelope. And inside the envelope was a cord of stamps, which is 100 stamps. So I checked my records, my, my information, called family members to this day. No charge, no nothing, and nobody knows where it came well, from. Well, I'm not sure I follow. Just uh, give me the first part of the story again. It was with, along with my mail, one of the envelopes in there was a, a brown manila envelope, something like, looked like almost like a paper bag, addressed to me, and inside there was a cord of stamps, which is a roll of stamps, which is 100 count. What? So somebody sent you a whole bunch of stamps? Well, there's one roll. It's a, yeah, so it looks like the, the shape of uh, like a size of a dime in a roll. But well, that's wonderful. Stamps. That's like uh, oh, well, Christmas. Yeah, well, I, I checked with my family members. My sister looked it up and said it's about $57. So with that said, I called anybody in my family. I don't want to beat this to death, but no one knows anything, and I've never been charged for it. Well, that's wonderful. If anybody sent Gary these stamps, uh, call us uh, so we can get your information to Gary so he can thank you. That's a that's great. 800-848-9222. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah. Hi, Frankie. How you doing? Good. Yeah. So he went to Israel and he's going to Saudi Arabia. But, you know, we could have cut all this by get, get he should open the Keystone Pipeline and get the drilling done in America, be distributors again. You know, it's it's just so hard, and so this, seeing this, it makes it just makes everyone so upset. Because once we we start drilling again, we open up all the um, all the pipelines. Keystone Pipeline there was two hundred fifty thousand people working there. We have tons of oil in America. We the inflation goes down. Everything will just domino into a much better situation. Well, and everything will just that's all yeah, you need. I mean you're going to get no argument from me on the Keystone pipeline. There is some debate of over energy analysts and economists over how much the Keystone pipeline would have actually reduced gas prices, but the guy that I generally trust on this is our owner, John Katsimatidis, who is uh in the oil business. He says it would actually have a pretty significant impact, not only on terms of supply, but in terms of uh, speculators. He's saying that if uh, we got the, the pipeline moving again, and that would transport Canadian oil, not American oil, but Canadian oil, then that would lead to uh, speculators driving down the price of oil per barrel, which, uh, which would be pretty interesting. The other thing that you didn't mention, Simon, uh, which uh, I certainly think would be a big help, and thanks for the call would be let's do away with this uh, prohibition on importing Russian oil. Now, it's all well and good if you want to prohibit, if you want to punish Russia for invading a neighboring country, but do we really want to punish ourselves with higher gas prices, which means essentially higher prices for everything, just so that we can punish Vladimir Putin? Because I, I don't know if you heard the interview that... Um, that took place on the Cats at Night show yesterday, the Russian ruble is doing better than it has in eight years. The Russian ruble is ascendant. The Russians are doing fine selling oil to everybody else. That's, you know, that's not in our little group of folks that aren't buying oil from them. So we're not hurting Russia by prohibiting the import of Russian oil. We're hurting ourselves. You heard uh, Mark Sloboda, who was on this show, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. He says gas in Russia is about $2 a gallon. Now, I mean, 
you think to yourself, we're prohibiting the import of Russian oil in order to hurt the Russians and help the Ukrainians. If their ruble is ascendant and they're getting to enjoy $2 a barrel gas prices and we're paying four eighty something a gallon, what sense does that make? They should change that as well. All right. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We will talk a sad subject in a moment. Keep asking questions. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. You know, yesterday was the anniversary of the famous blackout uh, that took place in the 1970s. And when you think of New York in the 1970s, one of the first places that comes to mind is uh, Studio 54. And years ago, of course, uh, they made a they made a film about it. They made, uh, I think it was um, Mike Mike Myers who played Steve Rubell. In that film, he was sort of the the, the face of uh, of uh, Studio Fifty Four that everybody was familiar with, and his partner was Mark Fleischman. He was Mark Fleischman was the owner of legendary Midtown nightclub Studio Fifty Four, walking distance really from where I'm sitting right now. And it came out yesterday that Mark Fleischman, at the age of eighty two died by assisted suicide in Switzerland. Now, this was somebody who was unable to walk. His speech was significantly impaired and had been for the last six years. And doctors couldn't diagnose his condition. Last month, he told the New York Post, I can't walk. My speech is effed up and I can't do anything for myself. My wife helps me get into bed. And I can't dress or put on my shoes. I am taking a gentle way out. It is the easiest way out for me. So while he owned Studio 54, Fleischman partied like a rock star, literally. He partied with Andy Warhol, Calvin Klein, Liza Minnelli, Cher. And look, how does that lifestyle not take a toll? On someone, he said, he told the New York Post, I like to be high, so I would do drugs and drink. Possibly this health condition is because I drank a lot and did drugs. It's important to keep in mind for any of you out there that enjoy doing drugs. So after suffering for years, Fleischman decided to travel to Switzerland and take his final drug, a lethal dose of barbiturates which is what happened yesterday. 
this has uh, reignited a whole discussion about physician-assisted suicide. Fleischman's former business manager told the BBC that Fleischman had died. Fleischman was working with a, a nonprofit called Dignitas, which launched back in 1998 and is devoted to helping people commit suicide when their health is failing. And Dignitas members reviewed his medical records and had conversations with him about this. And this is what Fleischman said publicly about his decision. He said, the more I think about it, the more I want to do it. I am flying direct to Zurich from L.A. There will be no last party. Now, to me, this story is sad all the way around because this is a guy that was a husband. This was a guy that was a friend to many people. This was someone that had an impact on New York for a long time, an impact on the club scene, the whole disco era he helped define. It's also sad because, I mean, who knows exactly what his ailment was. But it's sad because there's a good chance his lifestyle of partying, drinking nonstop and doing all sorts of drugs contributed to his situation. It's also, to me, incredibly sad that he was suffering so much that he felt that he had to take his life at the age of 82, which is an incredibly young age. So the reason that he went to Switzerland to do this is because this is not something that's legal here in the United States. My question for you is, should it be? Should the United States uh, as a whole, I know there are certain states that have different rules, but should the United States as a whole and should your state be open to the idea of physician-assisted suicide. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Advocates of assisted suicide laws have always said that mentally competent people who are suffering and have no chance of long-term survival should have the right to die if and when they choose. If people have the right to refuse life-saving treatments, they say that they should also have the freedom to choose to end their own life. And I have to tell you, and I know this is very controversial, that's kind of where I come down on this question. I, uh, I think if you have, if you're in pain every day and you're suffering from a degenerative disease that there's no hope for, and I mean no hope, and you're not only in pain every day and you're suffering nonstop and your family is suffering by watching you suffer. I believe that you should have the ability to end your own life. Opponents of that proposition say that that essentially devalues human life. Medical prognoses are often inaccurate. Um, People who've been told they are going to die soon sometimes live for many months or even years. They also argue that seriously ill people often suffer from undiagnosed depression or other mental illnesses that can impair their ability to make an informed decision. I I get that. I get that. And uh, I think those are all something that uh, I'd need to consider. But look, 
if there's no hope of recovery and you're in severe pain, shouldn't we trust your judgment enough and give you the dignity of making this decision to end your, lo- your own life? I think we should. 800-848-9222. I think the best-known practitioner of this was Dr. Kevorkian. Dr. Kevorkian himself passed away, but uh, not before he was put on trial repeatedly for this. And uh, he was very outspoken about this. He spoke to 60 Minutes back in 1998 on this subject and on the idea of medically assisted suicide. You were engaged in a political, medical, macabre, a publicity venture, right? Probably. And in watching these tapes, I get the feeling there's something almost ghoulish in your desire to see the deed done. Well, it could be. I, I can't argue with that. Maybe it is ghoulish. I don't know. It appears that way to you. I can't criticize you for that. Mm-hmm. But the main point is you, the last part of your statement, that the deed be done. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. What say you, Original Rick in New Jersey? Hello. Good morning, Frank. Yeah, that's assisted suicide. I, I agree with it. When I, but by the way, there are ten states that allow you to do it in the United States. Mm-hmm. No, I realize that. Yeah. Oh, okay, but uh, my father, they they put him on machines in, in the days before the cell phones. They couldn't get a hold of us. So they put him on a breathing machine because he didn't have it. There were no DNRs in or whatever. I don't know. No living wills, rather. Um, they couldn't take him off. Even though he was in a coma, they, they couldn't take him off. And, and they'd slip in and out of the coma. And he would look at me and, and make this with his fingers. like cut the cord, cut the cord. And I couldn't do anything about it. So I have a kit here. I made my own kit of a bunch of Percocets I've saved up. And in my old, in my, if no one will help me when I'm in so much pain and there's no help, I'm going to go out myself. I'm not going to, I'm not just going to stay there for years in, in pain with cancer or something. So, no, I agree 100%. You have the right to live. You have the right to die. Now, what do you say to folks that, uh, that say that uh, this diminishes the value of, uh, of human life and that... Um, I think- it, that um, I don't know. That's essentially oh, th- th- that's the key argument I always hear. The other one is that it's a slippery slope. That uh, all right? No, first, no. we're going to start by uh, uh, allowing Wait. people to kill themselves that are severely, severely ill, that are paralyzed, that can't even move, that don't know what's going on, and then pretty soon we're going to allow people that have a hangnail to do it. Well, what do you say to both well, of those? Well, that would keep you from doing anything in life if you give them an inch, they'll take an arm. No, no, it. That's ridiculous. It, the dignity is not diminished. It's increased mm. because if you've ever seen people dying like that and begging to die, and, and that, it, that is not respectful. That is not dignity. A person going out, pushing the button themselves, making the decision themselves, and being out of pain, that's the dignified way to go. These yeah. people apparently have not watched people die in horrible conditions you know i agree with you uh rick i I do i think we were on the same page i'm sorry you had to go through that with your dad i imagine that was really quite painful 800-848-9222 bob is in orange county hello bob 
Hey, Frank, how are you tonight? Uh, hanging in there. Thanks, Bob. Good, good. I, I love your show. Thanks so much for what you do. Oh, well, that's kind um, of you to say. Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll cut to the point here. Basically, um, Kevorkian, a, a number of years ago, I read a book by him. I think he has one or more books on this topic. Mm-hmm. And the amount of intelligence and logic he brings to this subject is frankly breathtaking. If you have an opportunity to read, uh, I don't, honestly, I don't remember the name of the book. It's been probably over a decade since I read it, but he's, he's not in alignment with the status quo. He, he's advanced his, his thoughts on this, but if you have an opportunity to educate yourself with uh, that book, it will really inform you in a way that kind of uh, takes the mystery out of everything. Really? So, I know he had one book. Yeah. Um, I mean, he might have several, but one was uh, Prescription Medicide. Is that the that, one? That's the one. That's the, that's one. the book. Yeah. Read it if you can. It, it's really something uh, extraordinary, so, frankly. N- needless to say, you agree that uh, F- Mark Fleischman should have been able to carry out this procedure in the United States and not have to go to Switzerland. Listen, it's um, it, it, I'm neutral on that. It, it's a case by case basis, but but there's something to be said about uh, autonomy and uh, you know observing it as a higher value. That's all I'll say on that. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you, Bob. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jr. is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jr. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Morning. By the way, I am I am on the side of of allowing. This assisted suicide. How come? Uh, federally, federally. Well, number one, because uh, one of your callers had said before, uh, I, I went through something similar with my father as well. The man was uh, completely uh, in his clear mind, without question. But he had said his spirit is broken, his back is broken, and his drive is broken. He was begging, please, please kill me. You don't know how much this, how much this hurts. Yeah. Number two, though, the. And, and you know what it is? Who is going to set the bar for the value of life? Mm. A hospital? Well, then, I, I, so the question, the answer to that is I really don't know. But then, right, of course. then, then are, isn't that sort of an argument against the legalization of medically assisted suicide? Because then doesn't that open us up to the slippery slope argument of, okay, first we start allowing it for this. Then, before you know it, we're allowing people that have a cold to carry this out. I understand that, but ultimately, and it is it. I, I, I guess there's a more a morality of a slippery slope. But the real issue that that I wanted to touch on was insurance companies, mm. because the machines that keep you alive cost the most. So you think insurance the, companies? The ins- absolutely. The insurance companies absolutely. want this. Yes, of course. No, they they do not want assisted suicide. They oh, I see. Because they want to be able to um, yeah, they uh, get paid. I see. I see. That's interesting. I would have thought yeah, it was just the opposite. That we're spending no. all this money to keep these folks alive in very dire circumstances, and that means that the insurance companies are getting paid. But your your point is that they're getting paid. Um, I mean that they're, I, they're they're getting paid in that instance. It's not that it's costing them money by covering those folks to keep them on those machines. Exactly. When you're born and when you die is when you are the most expensive in the eyes of an insurance company. Interesting. Uh, that's a great point there, JR. Thank you. 800 848 Charles 
is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi, hi. hi. Interesting topic. Um, in my opinion, if somebody, let's say, is God forbid, uh, paraplegic and he has cancer and the pains are unbearable and he begs to be killed, he can't do it himself. There I'm conflicted. Um, I don't know, I'm very conflicted. However, in general, we all wake up, we all have problems, part of life. You wake up in the morning, you're in a rotten mood, and there's nothing to live for, and whatever. You just see everything is terrible. Later in the day, you're in a great mood. So for somebody to commit suicide, you're not talking the dire situation that you uh, mentioned. All he has to be is in a bad mood, and then he sets up a suicide thing. And when he's next time in a bad mood, he goes ahead and does it. That doesn't mean it's... it's, uh, you know, it's many times later in the day, thank God I didn't commit suicide. Sure. No, I, I understand so, that, Charles. I recognize the permanence of uh, of suicide or, or death in general. I, I really think a, a physician, um, even a really out there physician, would be pretty reluctant to agree to assist a patient who was just suffering no, from a bad mood. Money or whatever. Or also, it would, many people would either be killed for, for, the, for the will. Let's say somebody knows that, that his father, who's very ill, uh, is about to change the will. So either he can do something if he's evil, or he can try to convince his father, giving him stress, don't change the will. People that inherit, people will do things for money. Whenever somebody dies, there's, so often there's friction between brothers and sisters that they got along beautifully. All of a sudden when it comes to money, they all think it belongs to them. You know, like they say, the joke with there's a will, there are relatives. <laughs> uh, I actually had You know, so I'm just saying it, it, it would be a danger to the person that is, is going to leave a lot of money or whatever. It's a very slippery slope. And then it comes something else. Uh, if life becomes unworthy, let, let's go on a suicide mission like like uh, the kamikazes or the Arabs. It, it, it moves in the wrong direction. But like I said in the beginning, when somebody's in unbelievable pain and can't commit suicide himself, there I'm conflicted, even though the law does not allow it, as far as I know. Right. Thank you, Charles. 800-848-9222. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi. Uh, well, let me preface this by saying um, we're Catholic in my family. And in 1992, my father was dying of lung cancer. And he was in a hospital in New Jersey. I won't mention the name for obvious reasons. And his doctors took me aside. I was his next of kin. I'm an only child. And they said, I, you know, uh, look, he can last another three weeks or he can go now. It's up to you. I said, because I'm Catholic, I, I don't want this on my soul. Do whatever you feel is best, but leave me out of it, please. So at 4 o'clock in the morning, I went downstairs to have a Coca-Cola. And when I got back up, they unplugged the plugs and he was dead. They did it out of mercy, and I think they did the right thing. Well, uh, and I, that must have been a very tough episode, uh, Diana, and I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I do think there's a difference, though, between taking someone off of um, life support and um, by actually giving them a fatal dose of drugs that brings about an end to their life. And one is permitted in, in, in 40 states or so, and one is not. And uh, what we're talking about is the latter, what Mark Fleischman did, taking a fatal dose of barbiturates to end the suffering of a fatal ailment here. That's what we're talking about.
800-848-9222. We're going to do the AC report coming up in five or six minutes. Dave is in Lockport. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frankie. Uh, how you doing? Good morning. Morning. Uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to your last segment because I didn't get online in time. Um, about the Russian oil. Okay. Um, I did my homework uh, a few weeks ago, and it seems that the the most uh, percentage of Russian oil we've ever imported is 5 or 6%. Mm-hmm. So why the hell is uh, our price going up? You, you, unfortunately, I think you bought into what they're, the current administration is selling because uh, if we're only importing 5 or 6% of our oil from Russia at the, at the most, and it was a few years ago, uh, and it's dropped since then, um, why is that affecting our price so radically? Well, what do you think reducing the available supply to American consumers of 5 to 6% does to prices? Make it higher or lower? Well, it makes it higher, but not right. that much higher. Yeah, I didn't say I it mean, made it that much higher. I, I you know, right. I realize, um, you know, that, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a bit, uh, but uh, I would still take the bit. I would take the 5 or 6%. Yeah, but I mean, it's only five or six percent of right. what well, we use. I mean, you keep paying the price you're paying. I'll take the five percent less. Well, okay, five percent. But why did it go up? I don't know. Uh, in the last two years, a hundred and fifty, two hundred percent. I think there's a, a wide variety of factors which have been well documented, including the um, the Keystone pipeline, including oil speculation. I think uh, it, but the fact that people are mostly back to work and driving to work, I, I think there's a wide variety of uh, of factors. And uh, I think part of it is the inflation caused by all that stimulus money uh, that we had two or three rounds of. So I think there's a wide variety of factors. Uh, I don't think uh, – and some of it is taxes, both on a federal level and a local level. So I, I don't think the solution is when you're drowning – to swim deeper under the ocean, which is, in my view, what we did by prohibiting uh, the import of Russian oil. Thanks, Dave. John is in Connecticut. Hello, John. Yeah, hi. I have an interesting uh, thing I want to let you know about. Um, my grandmother was dying. She had lung cancer. And she was really suffering. And uh, it was a hospital in Connecticut. I won't say which, but uh, the doctor brought my aunt, my mom, and I in a room, and he said, you know, she's really suffering. And then uh, my aunt said, what should we do? And he goes, well, you know, we can let her suffer or, you know, I can increase the morphine. So just to let you know about another story, my mom was dying last year. She had cancer and uh, she was suffering. And the doctor called me and he goes, listen, um, your mom's really suffering. We're going to change the medicine. So you and your brothers need to come down here within about three hours, and I just put one-on-one together, so it does happen. No, I I know. I mean, there was a whole episode of of Boston Legal about this, which I think is really rooted largely in reality, and uh, they do do that morphine drip. They call it, um, the the code word, I guess, is easing someone's pain or uh, managing someone's pain. 
But you, you still have to, in most of the country, you still have to couch it in those terms rather than acknowledge, as they do in Switzerland, this is what we're doing here. We're, we're very open about the fact that we're allowing someone that's terminally ill to end their life with the assistance of a physician. But uh, it's a big issue, and uh, I understand the ethical issues on both sides. I understand the legal issues on both sides until the uh, caller I believe it was J.R. brought it up. I don't know that I had a full understanding of some of the economic issues there as well, but it certainly makes sense. On to more fun pursuits like Atlantic City. The AC Report, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, it blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. And it blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on a promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlanta. Ah, yes, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities in all the world, Atlantic City, New Jersey. And interestingly enough, whether we're talking about the expansion of gambling to other jurisdictions, whether we're talking about crime, whether we're talking about uh, the legalization of cannabis and its implications, whether we're talking about cities that have to adjust to a 21st century economy, there are so many cities around the country and, quite frankly, around the world that are dealing with some of the same issues that Atlantic City, New Jersey, is dealing with. And a publication which has done some great work covering the economics of uh, Atlantic City, especially when it comes to the business community, is NJ Biz. And uh, Matthew Fazelpour is a journalist with NJ Biz, and he had a fascinating article a few weeks ago called Atlantic City Bets Big on Development. And I read it, and I was really, really interested in having him on the program to uh, talk about it. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's a tough hour. Hey, Frank. No, I, I appreciate you having me on, and thank you for the kind words uh, about both MJ Biz and uh, the story. I'm glad uh, it landed well. And, and as I was talking to producer Alex, this is actually back to my roots. I, I came up in uh, morning drive radio, so it's, uh, it's, I, I, it's kind of bringing me back in time a little bit. I know that. You were on Winds, right? I was. I, I did some stuff with Winds, and I, I spent a, a big chunk of my career with uh, New Jersey 101.5, so the hour is not far into me. Wonderful. Great. Love it. Now, uh, by the way, for people that don't know what NJ Biz is, fill us in. What, what do you guys cover generally? Uh, so, I mean, we cover all things business in New Jersey, so, uh, you know, down from small businesses and, you know, all throughout the community, all the way up to how 
know, it all ties in with government and different agencies. You know, Matthew, and, I'm going to uh, put you on hold because we're having a tough time hearing you. Maybe we can get to a, a better, you can get to a better area or area with a better signal. And then when uh, when you're in a better position, we can continue the conversation because uh, I don't want folks to miss any of uh, any of what you're what you're saying. So, uh, yeah, if you can work with Matthew to, to get a better connection there, Kenneth. Um, I will say, you know, so uh, my wife, uh, we went to Atlantic City over the weekend, uh, my son Carmine and I, and there's a lot going on there. If the time that everybody goes to Atlantic City is the summer because there's so much going on there. There's a great beach that's free. And where we stayed at uh, the Hard Rock, there's this new immersive Vincent Van Gogh exhibit. And this has now gotten national attention where um, uh, casinos aren't just being used as gambling houses anymore. But now with this Van Gogh exhibit, it's you can see digitally created work of Van Gogh. And it's it's having a lot of people asking, including the Smithsonian Magazine and other publications, can casinos be art galleries? So this high-tech hard rock exhibit is offering a very unique perspective on Van Gogh. You can immerse yourself in the art. It's a self-guided, roughly hour-long exhibition, which runs till the end of summer, till August 28th. You know, it's funny, uh, Friday into Saturday when I was down there, you know, there's no clocks in these casinos for a reason. So I stayed up gambling until about 6.45. I returned to my room about 6.45. So I then slept, or I did win, thank you very much, I then slept until about 12.30, and then we were going to meet my uh, my brother and uh, his longtime companion for lunch. So we, I didn't get a chance to see the Van Gogh exhibit, even though we were at the Hard Rock the day that it debuted. But the next time we go, which I hope is, is sooner rather than later, I'm hoping that we'll have uh, an op- – I'm hoping that I'll be a little more responsible and get to bed early – while still winning the same amount of money. And I'm hoping that we get to uh, check out this uh, this Vincent Van Gogh exhibit. But uh, it's gotten rave reviews from people that are laymen like me and people that are, you know, very accomplished art critics. So it's very interesting. As you might have heard me, if you're listening in New York, heard me mention at the top of the hour, Atlantic City is also going to have a referendum about converting to nonpartisan elections, which I think is a great thing. All right, we've got Matthew uh, Fazelpour back. Sorry about that, Matt. I'm glad we got you. Yeah, no, can you hear me okay now, Frank? That's perfect. Thank you. So it just great. in a nutshell, uh, NJ Biz, what kind of issues do you guys focus on? So, uh, yeah, I uh, started to say the uh, we cover things from ground level, small businesses, all throughout you know, the different communities in New Jersey, you know, different all different kinds of industries all the way up to government and agencies and kind of how it all connects. We do a lot of power lists with like lawyers and accountants and different fields, you know, healthcare heroes. So it's a wide variety of things and, you know, just basically all things business in the, in the great garden state. All right. And now uh, as far as you can tell, how is Atlantic city doing overall, both during the summer and just in general at this point? So, there were some concerns earlier um, in, you know, like especially with the Omicron wave in the late uh, late winter and things of that nature. The number, the brick and mortar numbers started to improve um, when I wrote that story 
um, and and started to show an uptick in people showing up to the casinos, which is obviously the you know the biggest thing. I mean, the, the mobile gaming throughout the pandemic did great, and that's all well and good, but you know they still want bodies back you know, in the, in the casinos throughout the city. So ironically, actually the, the timing of, of you bringing me on it is, is interesting too, because I, I believe it's later today that the, the June numbers will come out, mm. which will tell a, you know, I've actually been kind of waiting on those to do my next, you know, piece to check back in to, to you know, kind of see, you know, as I laid the kind of the groundwork with that story and, and see where it goes. So um, I think we'll have a better picture throughout, you know, the day uh, later today when that happens. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's there's, you know, every business is going through the same in, um, issues, right? Inflation, gas mm. prices, labor issues. So it'll be interesting to see that collision with also the pent up demand and to see if people still have the discretionary income to, to go visit the casino. So I think, you know, that there, there were some positive trends heading into this latest report, which will tell, you know, a fuller story. So you indicated that the headline in your story was Atlantic City's bets big on development. What kind of development are we talking about here? Well, so what's interesting, you know, a lot of times with Atlantic City and as covering it throughout the years, uh, you know, a lot of things will get top heavy into just gaming stuff. And, and again, that's a huge part of the whole equation. But what stood out to me is that you know, a lot of, and it's not just like, okay, we're building a brand new super casino and it's going to have, you know, X amount of tables and restaurants. A lot of these uh, different casinos, I, I, I looked at it as almost like diversifying the offerings, more non-gaming re- redevelopment, which was stood out. If you have Ocean Resorts, they, they have an $85 million project. That's uh, former Revel. Bally's has a $100 million project. They're, they, you know, uh, outdoor areas, the, the yard uh, Caesars is investing a lot of money into their three properties. Showboat uh, is investing more into like recreation and go karts, and they're building a huge water park. Mm. So that's the part that stood out to me was it not only just money being invested by a lot of different you know properties, but also in you know non gaming uh, redevelopment as well. Well, beyond the showboat example you just mentioned, which uh, includes go-karts and the expansion of the Lucky Snake Arcade and that water park, which sounds pretty exciting, what what are the non-gaming developments that are that are in the pipeline? Well, a lot of these places, uh, you know, I mean, even just things down to amenities, you know, rooms, not just, you know, what I mean, so it's like they're they're you know, gotcha. restaurants. So, got it. Got it. You know, things of that nature. So it's not just about the casino per se, you know, more, you know, trying to work on, you know, just like making the properties a fuller experience for the guests. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's pretty exciting. Now, you alluded to inflation hurting business everywhere. And people are just tuning in. We're talking with uh, Matthew Fazelpour. You could check out his reporting, not just with respect to Atlantic City, but everything that's happening in the New Jersey business community at NJ Biz. What has the impact of inflation been on Atlantic City businesses or the people in Atlantic City specifically? Well, I mean, it's 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 an ongoing challenge, right? I mean, so I I, I just I think the one benefit that AC has had, as far as I've heard this summer, is that there is such a pent up demand, and and maybe some people that would have flown places are, you know, in, you know, in New Jersey or, you know, surrounding states would now come there. So I, I do think they're benefiting in some ways in, in terms of that, where, you know, it's a, it's a destination that you can get to by car. You don't have to, to fly all over the place. 
But, you know, again, I, I think a lot will be told in, in this report uh, that, that comes out mm. to, to see, you know, what, you know, because in the prior reports, there, there was no, the numbers did not reflect that inflation was causing, you know, less of, you know, money to be spent on gaming and other things. But I, I think now that this is all kind of colliding, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that all plays out. Absolutely. It certainly, uh, it certainly will be. And, and, you know, and I want to add one more thing, Frank. You know, another, uh, just in, in terms of just non-gaming parts, and this doesn't necessarily speak to the, develop, the, the investments I mentioned with the casinos, but just in general, um, you're starting to see other industries build out, too, in Atlantic City. You know, offshore wind is becoming a, a, a huge you know, investment uh, area down there, uh, you know, not just in Atlantic City, but also surrounding towns. Uh, I think yeah, you had just mentioned the cannabis industry. AC is leaning very heavy into that, whereas a lot of towns in New Jersey passed local referendums to basically keep it out. They have, I think, six licenses at the mm. moment. So there, and uh, and also, you know, esports is a big uh, thing down there as well. So there's a that's just to me is a positive trend to see the dis- diversification of their economy. A year ago, when um, last year's summer in Atlantic City was looking very uncertain, one of the things that I was hearing a great deal from businesses down there is the difficulty that they were having in staffing. Uh, this was at a time when a lot of workers were getting all sorts of government stimulus and they could do almost as well not working as they could working. So this led to a lot of hotels not being able to open their full stock of rooms for people because they didn't have enough staff to service them. As far as you're aware, Matthew, what are the staffing uh, concerns like there these days? Has has sort of demand caught up with the staffing supply or is that still an issue for local businesses? It is absolutely still still an issue, and uh, you know, in, in reporting the story, that it's absolutely uh, an issue that has been a concern. Uh, one thing that really has, again, this is as I've been watching this all play out. So far, they've dodged the bullet because the other, there there was a possible strike by by the big uh, mm. union down there, local fifty four, and they just reached a deal uh, over the last week with. Uh, all but two of the casinos, which, but they were ready to authorize a strike, which really would have been a catastrophe as you're then talking about this collision of like the, the demand with all these different issues. So it is an ongoing problem. And I went down there in May for, for a conference and yeah, it was, it was troubling because there were some, uh, during the week, there were places that were closed. You know, I was at the Borgata. There were some places that would normally be open. I, I believe it's gotten better in terms, you know, they, they're starting to get back to a little bit semblance of normalcy, but it is definitely still a challenge. And thankfully, as of now, that you know, the strike was avoided. Uh, there's two more resorts in Golden Nugget, or, Nugget are still negotiating. Uh, but, it, you know, it could have been a lot worse. And then also, you know, again, just talking about some of the like outside of the box thinking that I, I, I'm liking that I'm seeing down there. Um, you know, you're starting like so. Stockton is a very g- good ally and resource with, with with the city. They have a program now with all the major casinos to bring back. It's like 145 or 150 students. They live there for free throughout the summer, and they work and get experience wow. in in the casinos, which I thought was a very novel way to approach. You know, so again, it's not a huge number of people. But it still has helped, and, and, and it gives them experience. It's kind of a win-win for all sides. So that was also another – that was after my reporting 
that I that happens, which I thought was a pretty cool uh, idea as well. Now that that is uh, pretty interesting. I, I uh, didn't know that, and uh, that's uh, that sounds like the exact kind of creative partnership that uh, that we need to hear about. You mentioned Stockton, which is a great example of uh, a business in Atlantic City and an academic institution that uh, is not necessarily directly tied to the fortunes of gambling. No secret, New York has gambling, Pennsylvania has gambling, Delaware has gambling, It's a sh- Connecticut has gambling. It's a shorter list of nearby localities that don't have gambling at this point. How is Atlantic City doing in terms of diversifying its, uh, its economy beyond simply the nine casinos that are still there? Well, again, I, I, I'll come back to what I was, what I mentioned. I, it, they are starting to lean into these other industries, these emerging industries. So, offshore wind, cannabis. I think the film industry. I, I believe you're going to start to see more there. Actually, I, I just wrote a piece that will be coming out uh, next week about how you know not only is our New Jersey becoming a film hub, you know, in, in, in one of the bigger film hubs in the country, it's also spreading out throughout the state, and now. Locally, you have local film commissions that are being organized, and I, I expect to see a lot of activity in Atlantic City um, and, and that area w- with some of that as well. And again, and, and that's where you know you're not only using it as a backdrop for a production, you also start to build out the infrastructure of having partnerships with with places like Stockton and other uh, you know universities and, and, and different schools. So you really start to uh, you know, d- diversify things that way. I, I just, uh, you know, there's there, esports was another example of, of things that they're doing. And then there's, you know, again, just re- you know, different restaurants and and and, and uh, recreational offerings. I, I think you're just starting to see a positive, you know, trend in that direction. <clears throat> Excuse me. The um... The the thing that I loved about your article, and if uh, people are just tuning in, we're talking with Matthew Fazelpour. If you haven't had a chance to read this article in NJ Biz, I'm going to link to it uh, right now on my uh, Facebook page. But the thing that I liked about it, as somebody that's very bullish and hopeful about the future of Atlantic City, is that it strikes a pretty optimistic tone because it chronicles all these businesses, all these separate businesses with separate owners all making the decision to pour a whole bunch of money, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, into these properties and not, say, throw in the towel because there's gambling in other nearby municipalities. I am curious, though, do you think or are you hearing that now's also a good time for residential investment in Atlantic City at this point? Well, I, I know they are they're pushing that hard and and there's you know there there's some developments that you know are, are in different stages of, of planning but again I, I think like just using the example of Stockton they're trying to attract younger people into the area you know build a workforce around it there are absolutely still challenges on that front and you know and then uh, you know there's sometimes a divide between the tourism district and the rest of the city. But again, I, I just think in general, because sometimes with you know places like that, you know you'll you get some some too many of the the gimmicky kind of ways of solving problems, and and sometimes just throwing money into the wind at, at things and government programs and things of that nature. I just think it's a, like you said, it's a it's optimistic to and, and keep, keeps me optimistic to see just real brick and mortar investment. Sure, that you know br- you know the, you know then you bring in the workforce and everything like that, but. 
Um, I think they are making strides on the residential side, but I, I think there's a lot of work to be done. And again, another program, um, or you know, kind of summer initiative that that came out that after uh, I wrote my piece, the the city um, is building an affordable housing complex and having uh, again the high school kids like do like a kind of a summer internship there to learn be on the job, learn the construction trades. Uh, and, and, and get experience that way, like real life experience. So there's, you know, some different, again, I, I always appreciate outside the box thinking, especially sure. when we're going through such a, you know, turbulent time with, with no shortage of challenges. You know, one of the challenges that all cities are dealing with right now uh, is the issue of crime. New York is certainly dealing with this, but cities all over the country are dealing with this. And if there's something that could slow down both business investment and uh, tourism, it's it's crime. Based on what you're seeing, what is the crime situation like there in Atlantic City? Again, it is. It's. I'm not going to try to say everything's rainbows and sunshine, uh, despite the optimistic tone of of my article. That there are absolutely still challenges there. And again, you you know just the, you know sometimes there are you know just kind of tensions. Between the tourism district and other parts of the city, uh, I know they're trying to, you know, do all they can to, you know, crack down on it. it it's, you know, it, that's still going to be an ongoing challenge, you know, throughout the summer. But uh, I haven't heard anything in terms of apocalyptic kind of, you know, you know, negative things in that direction. So. Um, you know, nothing major to report from my end on that front. Mm. I ask almost everybody that comes on for this segment, Matt, and I'll ask you the same question. Yeah. Gun to your head. If you had to pick favorite restaurant, Atlantic City, doesn't matter what type of cuisine, doesn't matter casual or expensive, overall favorite restaurant, what is it? Well, I'm a, I'm a bit of an old soul, and, and I like the old school kind of places. Knife and Fork Inn is always a solid place, uh, in my opinion, that, that's for, for a good kind of meal. You can't go wrong with the knife and fork. That is no. uh, five-star. Yeah. Hey, Matt, uh, it's great talking to you. I hope we can do this again in the future. Absolutely, Frank. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give us a call. Give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. good song um it's from the 90s and i've always said that one of the things that i try to do is i try to pick songs from every different era every different genre you know i try to showcase music the way that i feature talk topics same principle uh that i with a a, a an slant towards diversity so you'll hear music from the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s 2000s 2010s 2020s but in trying to pick the music that we play on this show, 
I have said that one of the greatest challenges that I have is finding good and great music from the 90s. It, 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 you look at the 60s, you look at the 70s, it's like you could throw a dart at any of the top 100 hits in any given month in those two decades. And in my view, you're going to have a winner each time. The 90s, I don't think that's the case. That's why the story that I saw yesterday is came as quite a shock to me. Because the share of Americans who say they listen to a, a music from a particular decade is out. And do you know the decade that Americans prefer? The 90s. The 90s. So you have Generation X, Millennials, and Generation Z. They don't agree on much. They don't act the same way. They don't have the same sensibilities. They don't um, view sports the same way. They don't view the same sports. They don't have the same politics. They don't act the same way in the workplace. But the one thing that these three separate generations agree on is that they like the music of the 90s. Music from the 90s, according to Axios, is more popular than music from any other decade right now. And when I say any other decade, I mean even the current times. There are more people listening to 90s music right now than are listening to the music from the current decade. So Americans born in the 90s and 2000s, they're listening to music from the decade they were born at higher rates than any other generation in recorded history. So um, I don't understand it, but... The thing with art is I don't have to understand it. I, one quick anecdote I did want to share with you, and we have eight open lines if anybody wants to keep me from talking to myself or, even worse, having to resort to talking to Matt Blaze, 800-848-9222. But um, uh, one quick anecdote I want to share with you about Atlantic City. So Friday we were at the Hard Rock, and Saturday my step-cousin Scott had invited us to stay over his place. He's got a place in Brigantine, which is a neighboring uh, city to Atlantic City. In fact, 100 years ago, they used to be called West Atlantic City. They changed the name. They went back to Brigantine. But it's right there, it's, and it's right near the Marina Casinos, uh, Golden Nugget, Harris, and the Borgata. By the way, you know who was at, at, at the Marina this weekend? All these great athletes for the Jimmy Johnson Fishing Expedition. Jimmy Johnson was there, Michael Jordan, Dan Marino. I didn't get to meet them. My wife was excited because at Harrah's, one of the guys from uh, Jersey Shore was there. And um, we, we didn't get to see him, but uh, my cousin was all excited and it was a big thing. But anyway, so my step-cousin Scott had said that he was not going to be able to come down for the weekend because they had problems with their pool at home. And they said, use the house anyway. We'll give you the code. Great. Okay. So that was our plan. We didn't make any arrangements to see them. We just made arrangements to stay there. Then um, I get word on Saturday, great news, they're able to come down. So we are going to see them. So what do you do? If you go to someone's house, you have to stop at a liquor store and pick up a bottle. Now, I know Scott's like me. He likes a cigar now and again. So I figured, let me get something brown to go with the cigar. So I'm perusing the whiskey section at Ocean Beverage in Brigantine. 
And I see they have this new type of Basil Hayden, which I've seen in liquor stores before but never tried. It's called Basil Hayden Toast, okay? And it's just toasted. The, ba- it's, the barrels are toasted. It's supposed to be good. I haven't tried it. I hadn't tried it at that point. But I pick up a bottle, and I'm waiting in line with uh, my brother who's in the liquor store with me. And I, uh, I, say, I say to Alex, do you want me to buy you one of these ocean beverage T-shirts? And he says, no, it's okay, I'll pass. I said, I have so many T-shirts, too, I'm not going to get one. But I I was curious. I almost bought one of the Ocean Beverage T-shirts in the liquor store there for $15. So I get to the front of the um, the aisle there, and the guy asks me, the liquor store guy, this bearded guy with a nose ring, says, have you tried that, the uh, Basil Hayden Toast? He says, no. I I say, no. He says, you got to let me know how it is. So uh, I ask, hey, That shirt that you're wearing, did you buy that or did they give it to you? He said they gave it to me. But if if you want to buy it, buy it right there. I have to warn you, though, if you come in here wearing that and we're busy, we're going to put you to work. Lo and behold, a couple hours later, I tried the whiskey. I called him to let him know it was terrific. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and for all the country from coast to coast, shore to shore, it is July 14th. You know what today is. Uh, If you don't, I'm about to tell you not to worry. But today is one of these holidays which I am going, it's going to be tough, but I am going to make a concerted effort not to celebrate. Today is National Macaroni and Cheese Day. I got to tell you, I am, and I have been for my whole life just about, The uh, I am one of the biggest fans of macaroni and cheese in the world, in all its forms. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a dish of macaroni and cheese that I've said, oh, no, that's terrible. I can't finish it. You give me the worst dish of macaroni and cheese in the world, and... And I still think it's better than just about any other food. It's an incredible food. And it there's a reason that it's had the kind of staying power that it has. Back in the uh, 1790s, Thomas Jefferson and James Hemings, his slave, they encountered macaroni in Paris and they brought the recipe back to Monticello. Jefferson became so obsessed With macaroni and cheese, that in 1793, he commissioned the U.S. ambassador to France, William Short, to purchase a machine for making it. Evidently, the machine wasn't suitable, as Jefferson later started importing both macaroni and Parmesan cheese for his use at Monticello. Then in 1802, Jefferson served a pie called macaroni at a state dinner, and the menu of the dinner 
was reported by one of the attendees who apparently was not fond of the cheesy macaroni casserole. Nevertheless, since that time, baked macaroni and cheese has remained very popular in the United States. Now, the reason I say I'm not going to try, I'm going to try not to celebrate macaroni and cheese is because it's really, it's not good for you. Uh, it's, um, the, the cheese itself is not good for you. It's got cholesterol. It's got fat. And then you take all the carbs from all the macaroni that's in there. That's not good for you. So it's really, it's a great way to pack on the weight in a hurry. It's a wonderful dish. It tastes great. But it's really not the – it's the kind of thing that I try to avoid because I love it so much. When I was um, maybe four or five years old, my uh, parents took me to uh, – I think it was the Ponderosa near Sesame Place. And my mother, to this day, she always says how she has never seen a child consume that much macaroni and cheese. It's an incredible – it's an incredibly delicious meal. But it's one that I try to avoid. The only time where I still try to get macaroni and cheese, if, I, if I'm in a restaurant somewhere, is if I see they have lobster mac and cheese on the menu. There's a lot of places that make a great either lobster mac and cheese or a great crab mac and cheese. And I just can't resist it. I, I am such a sucker for a good crustacean that uh, I will – I can't resist that. It's like – I'm powerless at that point. It's like a moth to a flame or those bugs that fly right into the bug zapper, even though, though they know they're about to meet certain doom. They go, that's me with the lobster mac and cheese. I can't help it. Best lobster mac and cheese I ever had was at the uh, Woolworth Kitchen in downtown Manhattan. That It closed and it reopened as something else, the Woolly. I don't know what became of them after after the pandemic, but the menu changed significantly. They were no longer offering that. But because it is National Mac and Cheese Day, they are um, offering uh, at Noodles and Company and a few other places complimentary mac and cheese in a whole bunch of different places. So if you're able to celebrate, if you're able to eat macaroni and cheese responsibly, more power to you. This is your day. So that that's a, an exciting thing. Now, M- Macaroni and Cheese Day, I think, was brought about um, because of Kraft. I could be mistaken about that. But um, mac and cheese is not just an American thing, by the way. It's considered a national dish in Canada as well. And a box of Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is actually the most purchased grocery product in all of Canada, if you could believe that. So, and the history of Mac and Cheese Day itself, it is a history of Kraft macaroni and cheese. So, that is, it is what it is. They uh, created this as a response to the the trying times of the Great Depression, as the story goes. But, um, hey, Kenneth, I know you, you said you can't have cheese from pizza anymore because of the protein that's in there. Does that mean you're off all cheese or just the pizza variety? Unfortunately, pretty much all cheese. All cheese. So you can't even celebrate today Mac and Cheese Day. No, sir. That's interesting. So you're still doing the uh, Matt Blaze, the low-carb thing? I am on a different 
type of diet that I cannot have macaroni and cheese. Well, what do you? Which what current diet? Well, it's you now. It's not just low carbs. It's like low everything. I can eat. I eat like a salad and chicken, and that's it. Is it like a keto thing? Or is no, it... no, no, no. It's not even keto. It's just no, more of like a normal type of diet, cutting out fats, cutting out dairy, right, cutting so you, out you're cheese. You're off pizza as well. Yeah, I can't eat pizza at all. All right, so so tomorrow is usually pizza day, and that was leading me to uh, – I, I had this on my list of things to wonder about as well. But um, we have – you know, we really – we buy pizza for the, the staff here as sort of a thank you for their great work that they do most of the time. And I, um, you know, it's really for our guys, but whoever's here can certainly indulge. The vultures, yeah, always but get it now. Alex can st- certainly indulge unless he's starting this new no pizza fast in solidarity with you guys. But we have Kenneth, our telephone talent coordinator, who can't eat pizza, and we have Matt Blaze, who's on this mysterious diet which he can't even name. And he can't eat pizza. And you have me that, uh, you know, I'm trying to lose weight and pizza is not exactly a health food. I really shouldn't be eating pizza. So I'm wondering, is there is there an alternative to pizza that we can order tomorrow? Now, part of me likes Pizza Day because it's a great way to compare the same product or almost the same product from a bunch of different establishments. I also like it because it's easy to share. A lot of people can just grab a slice. I also like it because it's easy to order. It's still it's easy to find um, a pizza place that will deliver at 1230, 1 o'clock in the morning. If we get into more nuanced foods, it becomes a more difficult expedition. I am wondering, though, if anyone out there has suggestions for an alternative to pizza on Pizza Day. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. By the way, on the food front, we do have a brand new supply of uh, my Aunt Camille's egg salad in the refrigerator, which everybody is welcome to uh, to try. She did seem a little unhappy that none of her Tupperware containers are being returned to her, so she gave it to me in a, in a plate with some tin foil over it. So that's... That's where we where we are at the at the current moment. But if you have a suggestion for a a pizza alternative tomorrow, Aunt Camille needs to order more Chinese food to <laughs> I, get more I, containers. I, hey, well, m- I may, guess. maybe you can bring some of your containers. I will if you want. Yeah, well, yeah, one or two. I I'll think it shows a container or two. I think it shows we're trying to pitch in here. All right, you know, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank, uh, I'm with you on the mac and cheese thing, by the way. Love it. And uh, White House subs. If you want a real sub, you can go to White House oh, subs. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I, I I don't know if you heard me mention that at the top of the hour. No doubt about I it. I did. Absolutely, yes. Um, and, again, the, my favorite part of the week, like yours, is the AC report. I love it. So I, I've talked to you in the past about how my brother-in-law has a place down in Northfield, and my wife and I go down, you know, at least twice a month we go down. We have our own bedroom in his house. He has a four-bedroom house by nice. himself. Nice. And we, I noticed lately, you know, we go during the day a lot because we go to the beach. By the way, the beach is free. There's parking everywhere. You know, if you go to other beaches down there, which are really nice, like Margate, Ocean City, it's impossible to park. Oh, you know, and, and a lot ocean. of them, you know, I really enjoy Cape May, too, and my uh, we're going in August. But um, they, they charge you an arm and a leg for a beach pass just to sit on yes. sand, right? The uh, That yes, is one of the correct. great things about Atlantic City is that it remains a beautiful beach and a free beach. 
It is, yes. It is beautiful, and it is free, and there's parking everywhere. You right. can park down the side streets, the dead ends that lead down to the boardwalk, and it's like five hours of parking the street. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's, and uh, I, we go a lot during the day, like I said, and I noticed that lately, like the Tanger outlets, are they're packed. There's always people walking about, and I noticed that the police are being a lot more proactive. Like with the homeless and stuff, they'll stop them, they'll talk to them, they'll try to get them help. I noticed them out and about a lot more lately. So it's it's not as bad as everybody, you know, makes it out to be, I, I think, anyway. And I'm down there fairly often. Yeah, no, so. I think it's uh, – I, I agree with you. I, I think there's still a lot of life left in uh, in Atlantic City. And uh, I um, I really think people who've written – like the song says, people who've written Atlantic City's obituary before – are uh, are in for a rude awakening uh, this time around. Now, I mean, in fairness, it's always kind of busy during the summer, but I agree with you. I think there's a different energy and a different spirit there this year than there has been at least in the last two or three years. Yes, but also, even though in the, I go down a lot in the winter as well, it's not, you know, it's not completely dead because there's so much more to do. You don't have to go to the boardwalk or the beach. There's so much to do, you know what I mean? There's like all the clubs, they have so many offerings, if, you know, bands playing and discos and my wife likes to go to the discos, and they got karaoke bars. I mean, there's literally something to do, like, every day, all yeah, day. Uh, you're, you're, I feel like if I spent three weeks there, I would not be able to get in all the activities that I would like to get in in three weeks. You're right. The restaurants alone. Absolutely not. Phenomenal. Yes, Kevin, there's so many good restaurants as well. Kevin, thank you very much uh, for the call. Maybe I'll see you down there one of these days. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Craig is in Brooklyn. Hello, Craig. Frank, how you doing? I'm doing great. So I'm just calling in. This is Craig Eaton from Brooklyn. Oh, the Craig Eaton, the uh, frequent contributor to the, um, you know, to the Cats at Night show. I enjoyed your uh, your insight on uh, on some legal issues yesterday. I thought you were uh, you were spot on. You and uh, Judge Weinberg. You know what? It's a lot of fun. I go on Tuesdays with John and, and the judge and everyone else, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And we talk about. You know, the current events, the financial, the medical, the legal, the, the government, we talk about everything. And, uh, you, you know, as well as I do, John is one of the smartest men in the entire world. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, his insight on uh, the energy issues alone, uh, they are spot on and right on the money. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, I mean, um, it's uh, that's the thing about that kind of panel that uh, that you guys have collectively assembled there is um, you guys can kind of handle anything, legal questions, economic questions, political questions. Uh, it's, um, it's always, quite a, uh, it's always quite, a, quite a scene there. You never know what to expect on that show. Well, you know what? John has assembled the who's who of every industry. And uh, if you look at the energy crisis and the energy issue right now, I mean, John has been saying for about three months now um, to the president and everyone else in the White House, that if you just open up the oil reserves here in America, in North America, it'll solve inflation and the oil crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not sure what they're listening to in Washington and, and, and who they're speaking to and who they're getting their information from. Mm. But um, Now, uh, yeah, on, um, on a brighter note, Craig, I know you are a uh, regular visitor to Aruba, right? You gave me a bunch of restaurant recommendations when uh, we went there for our honeymoon. So you still go there pretty often, right? I have been going to Aruba since 1977. My parents bought a timeshare in the Playa Linda. It was pre-construction. It was right on the main strip. 
And uh, my family and I have been going every year since 1977, except we missed two years. We missed uh, the millennium year and we missed the COVID year. But, um, you know, we were talking about, you were talking earlier about Atlantic City and the, the changes there. And I'm a big fan of Atlantic City. I mean, I have a house down on Long Beach Island and we frequent Atlantic City all the time. But uh, Aruba's changed over the years, but it's, it's like a hot spot right now. It's no matter who you talk to whether it's a friend, a client, relative, they're always they're going to or coming back from Aruba. Yeah. You know, uh, and, I um, um I, I checked amazing. out one of the uh one or two of the casinos when uh, when I was down there. Do you ever check out the casinos in Aruba? We check out the casinos every year. Yeah. What, what what's your take on the casinos there? Any favorites, any uh any areas where you feel like they're deficient, any areas where you feel like they excel? You know what? Um, we're in the cost. We stay in the Costa Linda now because we have a much larger unit in the Costa Linda, and it's it's off the main strip, and it really is like one of the one of the jewels on the island uh, because it's 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 got less rooms, but it's got a much bigger beach, and uh, the Alhambra Casino is right next to the Costa Linda Beach Resort, and uh, you know, for years and years and years, we never went to the Alhambra. We would always go to the Hyatt or the Marriott, and now you have the Ritz. Um, We've gone to the to the Rio Casino. We've yeah, gone to the no, I, I, Holiday Inn. I mean, we've, we tried them all, but I, I'd say the the uh, the one in the Marriott is probably the, the most favorite of everyone. But um, you know, we we venture to the Alhambra a lot more just because it's closer. Mm, gotcha. No, well, that's uh, I haven't I didn't check that one out when uh, when we were there, but hopefully on my next trip uh, we'll get an opportunity to uh, do that. Craig, you got to let me know when you're down there in LBI. If uh, if I happen to be in Atlantic City, we'll have to hook up for lunch or dinner or something. You are more than welcome anytime, Frank. Thank you, Craig, and you're more than welcome to come on this show. We don't want you to be just uh, exclusive to the Cats at Night show. I will be there, my friend. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight. Yeah, that's Craig Eaton. You can hear him every Tuesday uh, from five to six Eastern on WABC in New York with our our owner John Katzenmatidis. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Talking about National Mac and Cheese Day, which is today, and we're also looking for pizza alternatives for tomorrow. And when I say I, I, pizza alternatives, I'm not saying a soy pizza or something that we can order. I'm thinking something along the lines of a big sandwich, something that's communal that can be served that fits in with Kevin's, uh, with uh, Kenneth's dietary needs, with Matt Blaze's dietary needs, and that will still be a fan favorite. Does such an item exist? I remember when I was in uh, grade school, we might have even been second or third grade. We had a project as a class to come up with what would be the most successful breakfast cereal in the world. And what we came up with was that it would have to be a cereal that tasted good, that was inexpensive, and that was nutritious. That was the, the, the three things that had to occur for this breakfast cereal to take off in the eyes of my second grade class. I'm essentially looking for that same magic bullet for a communal food tomorrow. 800-848-9222. Jacqueline is in Greenwich Village. Hello, Jacqueline. Hi, Frank. Uh, I have to tell you, I have the best macaroni and cheese recipe. It has, uses five cheeses, but the real five secret cheeses. is... Five cheeses? What are the five cheeses? 
Uh, it's two kinds of cheddar cheese, white and yellow, um, Parmesan, goat cheese, and I forget the last one. I don't have the recipe is in it front Gruy- of me. Is it Gruyere? Is it Gouda? Is it Havarti? Uh, no, no, no. It's something else. I can't remember it. Well, is there a um, way that you can look this up at the moment, Jacqueline? Do you have it written down anywhere? Because I'm good. this is going to kill me, not knowing that last cheese. You know what I'll do? I'll send you the recipe Thank tomorrow. You. Thank you right? very much. Okay, Thank I'll you. do that. But the real secret is not to use elbow macaroni, which I, I, I detest. I use ratatouille. Do you know what that is? I'm trying to. No, I don't know that I do. I'm sure I've seen it. It looks like a little radiator. And it's got a lot of nooks and crannies, and oh. it holds the sauce. Back. You know, I just pulled up an image of it. I I'm, I have seen this before. I'm trying to think of the last time that I've I had this in macaroni and cheese form. I I don't know that I have had it in a in, no, you in a while. Probably never have. Nobody does this. Everybody thinks macaroni and cheese, elbow macaroni, wrong, ratatouille, and it's not always easy to get. Uh, you might have to go to like one of those uh, old Italian stores in Greenwich Village where I get mine. But uh, the other ingredient mm. is uh, 14 scallions, and you chop them up and put that in. And that gives you such an unexpected little bite to it as you're eating it. It's wonderful. Wow. And the other the other thing I do is instead of putting breadcrumbs on top, I get, um, you know, those big pretzels, the dark pretzels. I get that, and I crumble that, and I put that on top, and that gives it a better flavor overall. I know some people actually crunch up uh, and uh, and put in like a almost like it's breadcrumb, a either cheese doodles or goldfish. Do, do you ever experiment with that? No. Um, I don't because that would be a little bit too, I don't know, not special okay. um, All right. you know, for my crowd. Well, uh, this uh, this sounds like quite a meal. Well, I hope you're making this for National Mac and Cheese Day today. Well, actually, I just made it for the 4th of July because um, there's a convent that I'm affiliated with, and I do movie night for the nuns. And when I do, I bring macaroni and cheese. And I the film I showed was 1776. Oh, great. And the reason I'm doing this is because Thomas Jefferson brought macaroni and cheese to the United States. So they loved it. I have in my cookbook, I have probably 30 different recipes for macaroni and cheese, including one from President Reagan. So I'm really, this is like my, when I serve macaroni and cheese, you know you're a special guest. My, my goodness, house. Jacqueline. Thank you. Well, one day I uh, I aim to be invited. That sounds, uh, sounds the, quite The door special. is always open, always open. Uh, and the other thing about pizza, there is no substitute for pizza mm. because it is the quintessential New York food, meaning you can, in many places, you can pay for it, get it. And just keep walking and have your lunch. You waste no time with pizza. It tastes great. And it's just, I love it. Jacqueline, this is the uh, most informative call that we've had in the last three and a half hours. So thank you for this. (laughs) I I aim to serve. Have you ever tried those Griffin cigars that I recommended? I I actually did not. I did uh, look them up, but I, I never see them in cigars, in cigar stores. 
Yeah, uh, there's a place on 14th Street where you can get them, and I just ordered a box of them uh, from one of the online places. Huh. Yeah, I'm actually. And, I just looked them up. They sell them at Cigars International, so maybe I will pick up a, a box. Um, spend some of my Atlantic City winnings on these. Jacqueline, thanks for the call. I want to try and sure. get some other folks in. Happy National Mac and Cheese Day. Christina is in New Jersey. Hello, Christina. Christina, I'm going to put you back on hold. Turn your radio off, please. Either that or we're going to have to dock Kenneth's pay for the day. John is on Staten Island. Hello, John. Frank, the best mac and cheese, Lynn's Gourmet on West 55th off of 5th Avenue. Lynn's Gourmet or? It's called uh, Certe, C-E-R-T-E. It's right next door to the Peninsula Hotel on 55th. Right off of Fifth Avenue. Well, that's not far from where I am. All right, they open beginning at uh, seven a.m. tomorrow. Maybe we'll they're, maybe we'll they're do. Open, they're open. They're open very early. They do the mac and cheese, and they bake it, and it is like to die for. All right. Well, maybe we'll do that tomorrow for the holiday, uh, or today actually is the holiday. Maybe we'll do it tonight. Thank you, John. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank. Uh, yeah, usually nine times out of ten, I'll make my own mac and cheese, but uh, Stu Leonard has... I, I lost you, Chris, but I, it sounds like an endorsement for Stu Leonard's mac and cheese. Okay, got it. That's uh, that's good to know. Now we'll try again to go to Christina in New Jersey. Hello, Christina. All right, it's not meant to be for Christina. Thank you. Uh, just as well, because... It's time for us to try to give away some money. We're going to give away $1,000 to someone who can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you think you have what it takes, then be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222 because we'll do the $1,000 minute in just a moment. And then uh, Brian Kilmeade joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Feeling good as hell. Head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Coming up in just a bit, we're going to um, chat with Brian Kilmeade, uh, find, get a preview of what's coming up on his many, many shows uh, that he does. And then uh, we'll also um, get his take on the news of the day. But first, it is time for us to try and give away some money. It is time for... Presents, it's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Yes, indeed. I am Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us meet a gentleman who's no stranger to this audience, regular caller, Gordon in Canada. Hello, Gordon. 
Hello, Frank. I haven't been, I just started listening to the show today, so I hope none of the questions have to do with today's show. Oh, boy, you are in trouble, my friend. Uh, this is oh, going to be am? your penalty oh, okay. for not listening to the show in its entirety. All right. Um, you you, uh, you know the rules, certainly, Gordon, and uh, you ready yeah. to go? Yes. Okay. Thanks, Frank. What month comes after July? August. What country is directly north of the United States? Canada. What fictional bear loves honey and lives in the Hundred Acre Wood? Winnie the Pooh. What letter represents the Roman numeral for the number five? Roman numeral. Did you say V, right? V. V, right. V. Who did Donald Trump defeat in the 2016 presidential election? Hilarious Clinton. Uh, what classic cocktail consists of gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth? Oh, no. Gin, uh, got me there. Uh, it is the Negroni, Gordon. The Negroni. I'm going to put you on hold, give your information to Kenneth. We'll send you a consolation prize. That is a question you would have gotten right had you been invited to Brian Kilmeade's last book party. Because unlike a lot of the other book parties that I've been to over the years, that one included a top-shelf open bar, uh, which always makes his books among my favorite to read and to support even while imbibing. Very pleased to welcome Brian Kilmeade, not only a New York Times bestselling author, happens to be the co-host of uh, Fox and Friends on the Fox News Channel, a radio talk show host who could, you could hear around the country, including every day from 10 to noon on WABC, and uh, the host of One America Saturdays on the Fox News Channel. Brian, thanks as always for joining us. Hey, Frank, I think I just limited you to beer and wine because I was worried about your show, and I never quite know where your sleep cycle is, right? I mean, that's a big decision, too. So if it's 6 o'clock and you want to have a drink, you don't get on till midnight. Is that okay? When did you sleep? You know, so it's you have a difficult That's true. decision I, to make I, almost every day. I think I had different hours the uh, the last time um, the last book party I attended, but uh, but these days that would definitely be the uh, that would definitely be the handicap that I have. Uh, you were just doing Joe Piscopo at the time. I think I was. I think I was. So I just had to worry about um, about waking up and not stammering, uh, not, rather than uh, trying to do four hours of radio and sound coherent. But um, Brian, you know, a couple of listeners have been writing to me since the last time you were on saying Gutfeld always gives you a hard time about <laughs> your backpack. Now, uh, settle this for us once and for all. What's in that backpack? What are you carrying around in there? We may well, have to alert the authorities. It's a good it's a good question. I I, I always feel as though I got to bring stuff. I really was thinking about this today. I mean, I, I get everything on my iPad, but then I need cords, you know, because you got to charge stuff. And then I'm thinking, okay. And then I got these folders because I want to keep things in separate categories, uh, like receipts and things like that, and scripts. So I carry around a couple of manila folders. And then being that I'm always having to be on location, I'm always carrying, like, you know, TV makeup on it. So I keep that. Um, so I'm looking at my backpack as of recently and I'm thinking to myself, can I make it smaller? But I really don't want to. And the other thing is I used to do a shoulder bag and I'm like, why am I being uncomfortable? Because the shoulder bag might look better. I am better off if I got to walk to 34th street on Penn station 
with a backpack on, equal weight on each shoulder. And it just blows Greg Gutfeld away that I wear a backpack. He can't get over it. And every day, like, I will see him, and he goes, why are you doing that? I go, I need I need my stuff, and this is more comfortable. Do you have a problem with that? I don't have a problem with it. I, look, I'm a big uh, live-and-let-live kind of guy when it comes to carrying stuff around. People give me a hard time because I carry around this laptop bag, which I stick a whole bunch of stuff in. And uh, it's really, you know, I've tried to transition to other bags, but it doesn't hold into it everything that I want to hold. So I'm not ready to go full backpack, but it would make me think too much of uh, being in school again. But I, I applaud you for, you know, being kind of a groundbreaker there on that one. Gutsy? Would you say gutsy? Uh, not not necessarily for this. Maybe for some of the other work that you do. But but, but okay. bold, but maybe not, not so gutsy. Hey, um, there was an interesting column in the Washington Post by Gary Abernathy, who essentially said this January 6th committee isn't uncovering anything new. And I I really, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, And he describes how despite breathless previews of coming attractions, really little has changed since the hearings began beyond what was already established. Now, we've talked to you about your text messages being uh, bandied about by this January 6th committee. Would you agree with that Abernathy analysis? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was talking about, uh, uh, he didn't give me permission to say it, so I would say with a Bush slash Trump official was, uh, he said to me, Brian, we all know his behavior after the election uh, with the wild accusations and his temper uh, and the ill decision to have a rally the same day that they're certifying the vote was just, everybody knows it was bad decisions. It's like a two-year-old decision that we all make bad decisions. You keep visiting again, but now they're bringing color and uh, and, and bringing some quotes and putting faces behind what was going on in the White House. But we kind of reported on it. You know, uh, Donald Trump got mad at us. He's like, Fox is not covering the corruption. Uh, where's the proof? The voting machine. All... So it was one thing after another, one accusation after another, and now that's what we're getting. But now we're getting, well, I was an aide to uh, the chief of staff. I was uh, the, the president's lead attorney. And from their perspective, what they where, – where I was the president's attorney general. This is what – all right. It's their perspective on stuff that we've already covered. And now they say, well, there's witness tampering going on because somebody in the Trump camp, Mar-a-Lago, contacted a future uh, a person who might testify. Well, they're allowed to call people. This is not a trial. You know, they're basically friends. They went to war for four years together. So, well, I got contacted by a Trump official. I immediately got an attorney, and I called the nine, uh, January 6th committee. Okay. About what? I mean, they're not a legal proceeding. Well, then we referred to the attorney general. Okay, about what? That they reached out to you and that you might be on a witness list? I mean, uh, if Stephen Miller talks to Meadows and talks to Corey Lewandowski and they all talk to each other, they were friends before and they're going to be friends after. Manipulation? I don't know. If, uh, Frank, I know you have a big interview uh, coming up, I, I could, might give you a call before. Am I guilty of something? So give the context. I, I, I just find a lot of the stuff. And I just watched, before I came on here, we were in commercial, so I flipped on to CNN. And they were talking about a major new revelation about a possible witness tampering. That's their A block. Mm. Really? That's your A block? Right, Inflation is 9.1%. The president's over about to meet with Saudi Arabia, <laughs> making up some fictitious handshake rule when it comes to COVID. You got uh, Ukrainians, you know, cashing our check on a daily basis. You're going back to January 6th. How about the president's poll numbers? They're at 33 percent. Why don't you look at this president for a change? I know you don't get any ratings, but you at least you cover the news.
Uh, well, well said. I mean, speaking of President Biden heading to the uh, Middle East, you know, apparently he's on a mission to not only to get Saudi the Saudis to pump more oil, but to try and normalize uh, relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It doesn't seem like Biden is really living up to that campaign promise he made to treat the Saudis and uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman specifically as an international pariah, is he? Well, he isn't. And I think about this. We're not going over and talking to Saudi Arabia about rare earth qualities that by, by the title is hard to get. You know, like, for example, they're located in the Congo for all these electric batteries in this, uh, this electric revolution that's going to transform our lives. You know, there is only a certain amount of places in this country with this uh, rare earth is this lithium. So if you have to go ask one of our enemies to, you know, like, hey, I need the lithium. I need these batteries. I got these Tesla cars. I got these volts. Uh, I want to transition my economy. He's asking the Saudi Arabians to do in their country what we refuse to do in ours. And to do that, he is making himself look like the ultimate hypocrite going against what if I say his top three statements he made from his basement when Saudis are a, a pariah nation for us to do deals with them shows how little ethics we have as a country and how he took the Houthi rebels off the terror uh, the terror watch list. Uh, and now they, of course, are supported by Iran, who rocket these Houthi rebels, take Iranian rockets and send them into metropolitan areas in Saudi Arabia. And he took their side. And now he's like, hey, could you guys pump a little bit more? Really? You want me to pump more? Oh, don't you guys have oil companies? Don't you have oil and gas? You really want us? You want to pay us to pump more because and you want us to also stop dealing with Russia. And they've said no to that. They've also told them before the meeting, don't bring up human rights. Really? And now they don't want to do this handshake, this MBS handshake. So he says, just out of abundance of caution, we don't want our 79-year-old president to shake hands in Israel and Saudi Arabia. Really? What about the G7? They were shaking hands in the G7. There's no sign of a surge in the Middle East of a variant uh, that is going to hurt a 79-year-old, uh, more than the G7. So it, this type of stuff is, is, is folly. Uh, we're also one of the stories that's gotten a lot of attention this week is this ten-year-old uh, that was raped and uh, m- evidently needed to have an abortion. It's just a horrible story all the way around. But now it comes out that her rapist, who's been arrested, was an illegal immigrant. Now, do you see this reopening the well? And not that it ever really closed for a lot of folks, but uh, in in the minds of Americans putting border security and the issue of how to handle illegal immigrants on the front burner in terms of issues they're focused on. Frank, you and I do this, and and Fox does this, and we have Bill Malusia at the border. They don't – no one's covering this. And and I think this is – out of all the terrible things he's done, including Afghanistan, we're coming up in a year right now. What he's allowing to happen at our border – I'll give you a tweet from Bill Malusian yesterday uh, per federal source. There were 2,258 illegal crossings in Del Rio sector in one day. And we got the video. There's a staggering numbers for a single border patrol sector, and it's happening as we push into the hottest weeks when it's supposed to be leveling off. Think about this. So you have this situation. Then you have them cheering the Title 42, fighting to get Title 42 away, and they're cheering that the Remain in Mexico policy is disappearing. And there's something else insidious that Tom Holman told me about yesterday. Tom Holman said when the Mexican president came here and said, let's push for a pathway to citizenship for illegals, 
that's going to make it even harder. That is a signal in South and Central America, come. There's a big push now and a friendly person in the White House that is going to allow you to come here and stay here. So these guys are already overwhelmed, and now they're going to get even more overwhelmed. And the criminal element that's coming across is almost as scary, including the story you're talking about. So this illegal immigrant in Ohio rapes a 10-year-old repeatedly. She gets pregnant, and she goes to another state, Indiana, to get her abortion. And the president uses this story, but just says a 10-year-old had to leave a state right. of Ohio to go. And you go, wait a second. The bigger story is she was raped. Number two is there's nothing in Ohio that stops her from getting treatment to getting an abortion. Right now, there's no reason for it across state lines. The president, with an unvetted story, with the worst staff that we've ever had in the White House, period, goes ahead and trumpets this story repeatedly. And he'll probably say it again. And he's permissing the fact that an illegal immigrant under his reign in our country raping children, and you go focus on the abortion and a move that was unnecessary to make. You talk about burying a lead, and the rest of the press is not is only interested in burying their head. Uh, that is for sure. Hey, I really enjoyed your your interview in, in the aftermath of uh, James Conn's passing with uh, with Johnny Russo, who played Carlo in The Godfather. Yeah. Jo- Johnny used to come in on this show on a weekly basis and spend an hour with me. I don't know what I did to him, but some, I've done something that he doesn't want to come on the show with me anymore. So I was glad to at least be able to hear him with you. Uh, you got to put in a good word for me, Brian, for old time's sake. Absolutely, yeah. I'll talk to him again. I find him the most fascinating. I did this show called uh, Wise Guys. I filled in as host, and they did 50 years since the release of The Godfather. He was on uh, the panel. Plus, when his book came out, I interviewed him. But I just remember James Conn passed. I'm thinking to myself, he's got a few stories about James Conn. And then I saw the the sparring on the Megyn Kelly podcast, and then I did not see the New York Post story. But it was anything but a tribute to the late actor. He hated it. He said oh, that is for uh, sure. Conn yeah. hated him. And he hated James Conn. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't the best tribute I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. Hey, what's coming up on uh, on Fox and Friends today? Okay, on, uh, I'll tell you about uh, I'll tell you about our radio even show. Better, uh, even we, I got Dennis Ross. I think he's as schooled as anything in, in the Israeli situation about Israel is just trying to get the president to back off the terrible Iranian deal. Byron York will put the president's numbers in perspective, and they're terrible, but they're still beating Trump. Ambassador Robert Ford worked in that region in Saudi Arabia. He's going to be with us. Uh, Lieutenant General Mike Linnington's running the Wounded Warrior Project today. Is their uh, Wounded Warrior uh, uh, soldier? ride. It launches today on television, and I'll bring him up to radio. Uh, Mark Thiessen will be with us from the Washington Post, uh, and J.D. Vance. You know, he's trying to be the center from sure. Ohio. Yeah, yeah. so I'll talk about that. The Israel, I, 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 I'm hoping and, you and, and J.D. Will, uh, will mix it up a little bit on, uh, on Ukraine, because uh, both of you are among the most articulate uh, spokespeople for your cause on what the United States role should be in Ukraine there, so I'm not going to want to miss that. That should be good. I will definitely engage him on that. Of course, he's a military veteran, but I do think it's necessary. But I would like to find out where all the money's going. Frank, come on. Hey. We're writing these big checks. Why can't anyone oversee them? Why, even for the president's own political viability, you don't want this money being wasted or some of our weapons being trafficked to other countries. And how. Absolutely. Hey, what is this live tour that you're doing that I've been hearing about? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. So what I did is 
it's so hard to be able to do these, to do any. I love being on stage. I did stand up for 10 years. I like the unscripted nature of what you and I do on radio. So uh, when I start doing these book tours, I can't really do it for these companies because if these companies go corrupt or start investing in, and all of a sudden it looks bad for News Corp. So I kept getting rejected for all these, to, to do all these appearances with, with combined with the book or not with the book. So I just said, what if I just made my own events? And I just decided to go on these stages and be able to give people VIP access so I can actually talk to people that listened and watched the shows instead of shaking their hand and having 11 seconds with them. <laughs> Number two is I get a chance to be on stage, talk about all five history books, as well as my sports books, and talk about what's happening in the news. So I just uh, basically, you know, just uh, Brian Kill Me Live. And uh, it is red, white, and blue, uh, old patriotism. And I, I look at the 1619 Project, and I just put it in comparison to the reality of our real past. I did not know we'd be in a war on history, but we are. So I did not know. I thought people would say, hey, I'm interested in America's past. I didn't have to. I'd have to fight for it as they protested at Jefferson and Monticello and protested at Madison's house. Um, and everything going awry, the taking down of the statues. So August 27th, they'll be in Newark, New Jersey, uh, at the uh, at the um, I forgot the venue there. I'll be in Albany, New York, September 8th, and then I'll be in Brandon, uh, Mississippi, on the 12th and 13th uh, in Tulsa when my book comes out on paperback. But if everybody wants to come, BrianKillMe.com. That's, that's uh, click great. on tickets. It's always fun. Uh, that uh, that show on the 27th is at the uh, New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark, so people could check that out. That's a that's great awesome. location. Yeah. Hey, Brian, thanks so much. Um, I hope you're doing something fun for National Macaroni and Cheese Day today. Well, it's a big family get-together. Uh, most people most people in my family have taken off, uh, but I have to go to work and earn a living so they can enjoy their life and have pasta, carbohydrates. Thank you, as always, my friend. I'll look, look forward to talking soon. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we spoke about or jump on board for 15 seconds of fame, you'll have uh, 15 seconds of fame to say anything you like. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Time by Stevie G and the Nosebleeds, uh, The Other Side of Midnight, which is available on uh, on iTunes. I think you just have to search. I think you just have to search uh, the, the Other Side of Midnight, and I believe it uh, it comes up. So uh, that is certainly one of the great songs that uh, 
that everybody is uh, is talking about. Hey, they released the uh, full trailer for Rob Zombie's version of the Munsters. I used to love the Munsters. I liked not only the original version in the 60s with uh, Grandpa Al Lewis, who I actually got to know a little bit before he passed away, but I liked the they did a reboot in, I think, the 90s, and I liked both of them. So I will watch this. Uh, I, you know, Rob Zombie, I could kind of take or leave as a filmmaker. A little, a little out there, but um, you know, his versions of Halloween... I kind of prefer the non-Rob Zombie version, but I'm going to watch this with an open mind. But the trailer is out there. I'm going to, um, if I can bring myself to stop watching the fan-made Frasier reboot trailer, I will post the uh, trailer to the new Rob Zombie version of The Monsters on uh on Facebook. If you want to watch it, just go to facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. We have one, two, three open lines. If you want to comment on any subject for 15 seconds, that is uh, 800-848-9222 because it is time for the other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Let's begin with Fred in Yonkers. Hello, Fred. Hey, Frank. Thanks a lot for the beautiful t-shirt. Hey, you're a radio guy. What's all this talk about macaroni and cheese? You should be eating Marconi and cheese. Ah, very good. 800-848-9222. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, whenever I went to the beach with a beautiful girl and sat under a beach umbrella, some bully would always come up and kick sand in my face. I contacted Charles Atlas for advice, and they told me not to patronize beaches that have sand. <laughs> Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Anthony in Brooklyn. Hey Frank, I'm listening yesterday morning. I hear Deb Valentine refer to Biden landing at Ben Gurion Airport. That's a disgrace. Come on, did she ever hear of David Ben Gurion? Well, I mean, she purports to be a journalist. First of all, uh, Deb is an incredibly nice lady and uh, and a very talented news anchor. Uh, not going to let you uh, pick on her because she mispronounced a, a name or an airport. Do you know the na- amount of mispronunciations I make in a in a given day? The only thing that stops me from being constantly ridiculed is that I mispronounce so many words intentionally. So this way, when I actually do mispronounce a word, nobody knows if it's intentional or not. Don't pick on somebody because they uh, they said one word incorrectly. And um, we have to be extra nice to Deb because she's not yet invited to the barbecue. Roger's in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi. I wonder how many people there are that are dead set against us having nuclear-powered electric plants here in the U.S. but perfectly fine with giving Iran all the nuclear they want. 800-848-9222, Russell in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Two things. Let's remind everybody what a jerk the baseball commissioner was last year for moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta, Georgia. And let's rename our beautiful bridge back to the Tapanzi. 800-848-9222, Angel is in New Rochelle. Forget the Republicans, forget the Democrats, vote for somebody that has common sense. Joe Rogan for president, 2024. What do you think? Hey, I, I've heard stranger suggestions, that's for sure. I would love, 
an alternative uh, to the Republicans and Democrats. I'd love it to be somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, but if it has to be someone like Andrew Yang or Mark Cuban, I'm open to that. If it's Joe Rogan or David Portnoy, I'm open to that as well. You know, it's very interesting that right now the most likely candidate for the Republicans is still Donald Trump. The most likely candidate for the Democrats is still Joe Biden. You know what they both have in common? A majority of Republicans want someone other than Trump. A majority of Democrats want someone other than Biden. I think we're kind of uh, tailor-made for a situation where there's a, a major third-party candidate. And finally, let's say hello to Dolly in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Dolly. Uh, well done there. I was listening to the show back. The show sounds pretty good on delay. Maybe we shouldn't. We should stop uh, telling everyone to turn their radio off. So it sounds pretty good. All right. Hey, um, thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, tomorrow, uh, first hour of the program, will be Ask Frank Anything. So come armed with good questions. You have 20 hours to think about something creative that could help you win a prize. Uh, Marlena Shivo here tomorrow as well. And some other some other surprise guests that may pop in tomorrow. Until then, uh, have a wonderful, wonderful summer day. Frank Morano, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.